Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We were in the middle of playing a different game, and uh, he was like, we, we were playtesting Blades, that was one of our, our weeknight games, and uh, we were playing, I think it was like the FFG Star Wars game, and uh, there was just this like one point where we were trying to figure out rules about money, and it was kind of a headache. And he was just like, why can't we just make it coin? Why can't this, why, why can't this just be blasters in the dark? And so uh, th- th- that, was, that was the thing we all laughed about. And then we played it next week. Strash was an amazing guest. He covered so many different aspects of game design, and you can hear how much fun we had. He offers incredible insights on the playtest process and how the playtest process led to him designing games. And make sure you stick around to the end for our discussion of the hobby's current state and the power that comes from making games. The Third Floor Wars patrons make this and every episode possible. I'd like to welcome some of our newest supporters and floorheads. Big thanks goes to Harrigan, John Richardson, Arjun Potsma, George Dubas, Feeling Good Lewis, Andrew Lear, and Nick Sauer. Because of you and the other 100 plus patrons, I'm able to bring you content on a weekly basis. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Strash. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Strash Achimovich of Off Guard Games. Strash may be best known for his work on Fortune of the Dark Games, Scum and Villainy, and The Band of Blades. Both take the ideas of Band of Blades in the Dark, but they take them to completely different universes and different settings with surprisingly different mechanics. So Strash, welcome to the third floor. Hey, thank you for having me. So I need a little bit of a gaming origin story from you. Um, at one point, you discovered that you could roll dice and have a piece of paper in front of you and pretend to be somebody else. But there was the day before that that you had no idea you could do that. So can we t- go to that day when you first realized what role playing was? Uh, it's actually a really interesting uh, conversation about, like, what makes somebody a gamer. Uh, before that, 
my family, I, I was actually, my, my dad used to work for the diplomatic corps. And so we weren't in the States and I ended up, uh, for Christmas, my parents asked me what I wanted and they, th one of the things that I, I saw in a catalog and picked it out amongst piles of clothes and or furniture that my mom was hoping I would be vastly more interested <laughs> in as a child. Hint, I wasn't. Uh, it was an old board game, uh, which you could, if you, if you had video, you would see it on the shelf behind me, uh, called HeroQuest. And oh, wow. I really wanted it, but the shipping, international shipping, was a little wild at the time. And my parents tried to convince me to get anything else. And uh, <laughs> the bargain that they made was that that I could get two of something else instead of that. I was like, no. And then they were like, well, if you want that, you're going to have to wait a year. And wow. sure enough, a year later, a very tiny Strash adamantly stood by my decision. And so even though it was expensive, they, my parents got it for me. And then I was like the popular kid that had the cool game that would bust it out. And and we played through so we every got, module. We got to hold on a second here. So right, how right. old were you? I don't know. I was like, guess. I want to say like eight or nine. And you had the commitment like an eight or nine. I couldn't remember uh, a thing for a whole year and you committed to it for the whole year. I was very stubborn. I, I knew what tell. I wanted. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so this is a very long standing <laughs> thing between me and my parents. It so, didn't yeah. end with the uh, hero quest. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, goodness, no. So you're the um, cool kid. You've got hero quest. Uh, yeah, actually. Well, this is this is actually super interesting is the fact that I'm um, I mean, all the kids wanted to play hero quest and we played through all the modules. And then when we ran out of modules, I made up new ones. And, uh, you know, it's not really an RPG in, in the sense that like it's written to create uh, emergent narratives and people actually portraying their characters, but it's something that we did as kids. And uh, uh, to, to me, it basically qualifies as my first RPG. If we want to talk about actual first RPG, I had a friend who had an older brother who had a copy of Warhammer first edition in French. And that was actually the first role-playing game I ever played. <laughs> so I learned about Nevos and learned all my elements by their French names. And, you know, like this is just uh, it was it was a bunch of us younger kids getting to play with a much older kid, which yeah. we felt was super cool. I bet. Oh, I bet. Well, it's it's neat when I hear these origin stories. So just so you know, not to make you feel common or anything, but HeroQuest comes up a lot. I'm amazed. At, and HeroQuest was part of like that was my MacGuffin. So like automatically like eight year old Craig is like, God, you're so cool. You had that because <laughs> I never had a copy. I've yet to have a copy. I've played it, but I've never had a copy. And um, the friend old friend's older brother is another common thing. It's just really funny. And one of the things that I talk about a lot of times with um you know, people that uh, are of, of a generation before us, uh, before me, um, is is you know that that legacy of passing it down, and it's just like there was a, there was a older brother passing it down to the kids in the neighborhood thing that was happening, and it's funny that it happened to you. So, what was Warhammer First Edition RPG like for you as a kid? Like, do you remember what that experience was like? Yeah, actually, I do. Uh... I often joke that I think it's it's what actually attracted me to indie gaming. I know that sounds like a weird statement to make, but um, well, such a small IP. Well, it taught <laughs> it taught me two things. Uh, so you rolled characters, and you would get a career, and it didn't care if you particularly cared about it or not. Yep. And uh, first character I made was a rat catcher. And I thought it was the worst thing ever. And then I played, and it turned out to be the best thing ever. I had a small but vicious dog. Um, and it ended up saving the party multiple times. And <laughs> I, I was, it, what, it, what it taught me was to find joy in the unexpected. 
And there's another thing about Warhammer that most people don't know, which is that um, it has a very indie sense of bargaining to it in terms of roles. So if you look at a base character in the early editions, it'll tell you something that's not particularly useful, like your chance to hit someone with a melee weapon is 28% because it used percentile dice. And um, But that's not true. That's the beginning of the conversation. Uh, at that point, you start looking at what are your pluses and minuses. So like you'd say like, ah, but they don't know I'm coming and I'm also in the dark. So like maybe I'm going to get some bonuses here. And all of a sudden it gets into like the 60s, the 70s and so on and so forth. And what it really taught me was fictional position, which is something that we're going to talk about tonight. On it is. <laughs> Blades in the dark. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting because if you take a look at a lot of the more uh, modern adventure games that tend to be played on like grids with minis and things like that. A lot of this goes out the window. There's some like static plus twos that you can apply if you get like flanking or whatever. But um, this, this core conceit that the percentage that's on your sheet is the beginning of a conversation is something that I think got ingrained in me before I even understood game design. And it just that's uh, crazy. came with me all the way to today. So, yeah, that was a big revelation for me, that concept. And I, I give, uh, John credit for that uh, when I read Blades because it was one of those things that I kind of understood but then I saw it written down um, and I came from GURPS right so when I was a kid growing up we played GURPS which is just you know you think that 5e is crunchy um, you know that was everything was was leveled out and then the freedom that that conversation gives um, is, 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 is amazing and for you to have that as part of your first introductions is insane so what's after that so you play a little bit of uh, or do you play a little bit or a lot of first edition Warhammer? Uh, it was actually a little bit just because um, <laughs> one of the problems with, with kids and uh, being part of the diplomatic corps is you move a lot. So uh did not play a ton of that, uh, but I did end up playing, uh, I mean, obvious, th th this is a good shock nobody. I think I, I hit D&D second edition first because that's what a kid at summer camp knew. Um, <laughs> sure. And then I reverted to like old kind of BX style games because when I was in high school, one of the teachers who ran the role playing club, uh, that's the only rule set that he knew. So that's what he ran for us. Uh, so I, I was really kind of like swapping systems and learning systems. Like anytime you got to a new place or you got to a new group, uh, you wouldn't just accept that there was a difference in table culture and house rules. There would oftentimes be an entirely new game. And so um, uh, there was a lot of like expectation that you'd constantly be learning new games. And uh, in high school, actually, the game that kind of blew my mind, the thing that and <laughs> we'll talk about this, too, when we talk about some of my designs, uh, <clears throat> game I played a bunch of was uh, Ars Magica. Oh, yeah. And it's a it's a strange game. Uh, it has very strong opinions in its design. Um, it's the first time I was introduced to the concept of troop play. Yep. Uh, and it's just very, very powerful kind of formative experience for me. Like, uh, I, like when I played a bunch of D&D, a lot of what we played was, you know, either pre-canned adventures or adventures the GM would make. And the jump from that to this was was quite a leap. And I think that that's that's definitely influenced a lot of what I've been thinking about and playing since so i bet and you know who uh brought that up immediately too is when i interviewed uh mcgay and uh, vincent baker uh yeah. they talk about ours magical a lot as well so i'd be curious for you do you think that you picked up an ability to absorb quickly these types of mechanics because of out of necessity as you jump from game to game and group to group is it something that um that, that mechanized your brain if that makes any sense uh you know what i don't think so i think that that it's part of all of us we just 
people have a tendency to to like the comfortable, but I mean, if you think about it today, uh, there are lots of video games that are very com- very comfortable. People people play a variety of AAA titles that come out every year, and the thing is that even though many of them have elements that they share, uh, they also have vast differences in system. And we are actually pretty well trained, at least in my generation, uh, to approach a new problem set or to look at new game mechanics. It's not a massive iterative leap to go from something like Zelda to Dark Souls. It just has a more exacting, um, you know, specificity to your how you're actually like playing out your moves. So the thing is that I think that in our lives, we frequently do this where we approach new experiences and we absorb new experiences. And I think that there can be some trepidation and fear about departing from uh, you know, stuff that's comfortable and that you're used to. But I think that we do it all the time. And it's uh, one of the things in my job, like I'm, a, but during the day I'm a programmer. And so like learning new programming languages and brushing up your skill sets, things like that is a very common practice uh, in the job. So I think it's just part and parcel of my life. I don't think that there's something magically special there that makes me unique. There are gotcha. many, many people that do this all the time. So I think that it's just... Something like exploring the new and tasting different things is uh, definitely like a flavor that some people like more than others. You'll definitely find folks that just like the regular thing that they have and there's nothing wrong with that. And then there's definitely the people that are more like me who just want to have adventures and try different things and eventually find delicious new flavors that they like. So (laughs) bring it back home. Share it with your home group. (laughs) (laughs) So we found out your first game design happened back with HeroQuest when you ran out of modules. But, um, you know, and a lot of kids did that, right? A lot of kids, you know, uh, you know, created their own dungeons and things like that. But um, not everybody starts to really tinker with the guts a little bit. So I'd be curious, when did you first start noticing that you wanted to get a little bit deeper than just adding the next adventure and doing one uh, another thing? When did you find yourself dissecting things a little bit and experimenting with design? in that way so i don't know this this is a complicated question right um because i think that the line on what makes a designer is blurry like is adding one or two new rules for a dungeon uh where it's blurry there was a uh when i was slightly older uh i got to be the cool older brother as it were Uh, my sister and some kids behind our house, um, I ran some games for them and they were completely ad hoc. I ran them like out of my head. And the thing is that I couldn't, because like I didn't have like full book sets and I couldn't expect them to read, uh, entire compendiums. I would just simplify things and I would run it a lot more like original D and D style where they'd tell me what they'd want to do and I'd make some roles for them. And so, I simplified things and broke down tables and did a lot of DIY stuff there, but I didn't really think of it as a game design. I thought of it as just like, I don't know, I'm just running a thing for these people and I need to make it kind of work. Um, I actually didn't jump into design right away. I, I started working on, um, I, I did a lot of play testing for a bunch of designers. So <clears throat> if you if we roll back the clock, maybe 10 years, uh, the thing that I'm really known for is being a play tester in the community. I would be huh. able to pull together a table of people on a moment's notice. Uh, I'd be able to read through entire texts and provide feedback. And I'd be able to like test mechanics and say, you know, hey, this is what was working. This is what wasn't working for us. And so um, that's actually how I got involved with uh, with Blades of the Dark eventually. Uh, but I wasn't actually looking to be a designer. I think that 
today we can talk a little bit about keeping people on pedestals and sort of this artificial separation between uh, designers and people who are players and whatnot, uh, which I think is kind of bogus, uh, but it's something that I've, I'm, I'm looking at in retrospective. It's a lot harder to see when you're sort of in the midst of things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I, uh, I started working on um, the first game that I published. Uh, well, I, I published some modules. There were, there were a couple of people that actually signed me on board to write like little stretch goal type things. Uh, but the first game I published was, uh, there's a fellow by the name of, uh, Jonathan Walton, uh, who was putting together these, uh, they're called indie mixtapes that they were just like collections of short two to three page games, uh, where, uh, Jonathan would help out by doing layout and things like that. And then they would be sold as a bundle and the money would go as a charity to some designers that were in, in need for whatever reason. And so, um, I, I think I put out two or three very short games. And I think that what really helped me there is what we're seeing a lot in the sort of like itch community, uh, today is the fact that there was a very low bar in terms of what was required to put out something that could be called a game. Cause I think that everyone is perhaps rightfully scared of putting out a 300 page book because that seems like an impossibly difficult feat. But when somebody says, Hey, can you, can you crank out two pages worth of thing? Uh, you know, the, the bar's pretty low and here I'll help yep. you. I'll do some layout. You don't have to learn an entire new skill set on top of game design. And, and maybe I'll, I'll provide an editor or something too. And so like, that's just like one of those, it was one of those moments where, where I was like, yeah, I think I can do that. And so, uh, I actually made those, uh, with a friend of mine who's, uh, currently the other half of off guard games, John LaBeouf Little. Um, and that also helped is the fact that if you have a friend who says, Hey, uh, you know, I'll be there with you. Let's, let's get this done. Um, it also, it's all, it also helps. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I agree with you about the pedestal thing, right? It, um, it's very easy for us to, to kind of create that aura, um, that there's something different and, and super special about it. But at the same time, making something and finishing it is a big deal. Yeah, the eighty twenty problem for the last twenty yeah. percent takes eighty percent of the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm very and, familiar. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's um it, it and that's so many people get stuck there. Um, so I I I don't disagree with you about the pedestal thing, but at the same time, it's okay to be kind of like shit. I made something. <laughs> There's a really cool quote um that I heard once, which said that people don't pay for the idea of a game; people pay for the work that it takes to actually finish a game. That's a great quote. Uh, and I, I, I'm very much in agreement about that. There's, <laughs> you've lived it. Things. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, <laughs> I've been through the grinder and it looks like, uh, Sean has convinced me to do it again. So, <laughs> oh, good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> well guys, the insider insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creations. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about really the beginnings of things. We're going to talk about introduction to Blades in the Dark and in the idea of Forged in the Dark. We'll be right back. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Deadbelt, a card-based 
space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. <laughs> no one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to a acoupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. So we talked about your origin story and finding Hero Quest and kind of when gaming came, you know, part of your life. And I like how you parsed that. Um, but I'm going to do the same thing to you again to be a broken record. So at some point you didn't know about Blades in the Dark and then suddenly you did. Um, at what point did it get on your radar? So there was a, a thought experiment uh, that John Harper did. There was a platform uh B- back in the days of yore when dinosaurs roamed the earth uh, called G plus and a lot of indie designers <laughs> were on G plus and John Herbert posted a thought experiment on how to do position and effect, i.e. Um, fictional positioning in PBTA games. And uh, I had heard rumors that John Harper was going to be working on this, but at the time John Harper was one of those like, designers whose games I greatly admired, but I didn't know him very well in person. Uh, But there is, uh, I mentioned that I had spent a lot of time being a playtester. And so uh, the first, it it wasn't the first game. Uh, There was a, there was a deal uh, where I I went to, it's actually, this is actually kind of an interesting story. Um, I went to Gen Con one year and I just, it was the year I had, or like the year after I discovered indie games and this is when Games on Demand wasn't, like, a big thing. It was still in this tiny room in the back of the train station. And I had been at a table where I knew absolutely nobody, and it was only much later that I found out that, like, this Red Book Dungeon World game was run by uh, Jason Morningstar. I, I, I didn't nice. know who Jason was. <laughs> and we, like, got murdered by, like, spider goblins or something. Like, I, I don't even remember exactly what happened. It was, it was rough. Like we all TPK'd. It was, we were all laughing. We had a good time, but, um, and you had good relationships between the characters. Cause it was Morningstar. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, uh, but the, I, I tried picking up a copy of the red book and it had all sold out. And so I went to their website and one of the things that it asked, it said, Hey, we will give you a PDF of the playtest for free. If you promise to run it and write us a little email saying how it goes. And so I did that. I, I, I not only did that, but I was like, what a brilliant idea. And then anytime I was interested in a game that was in development, I would just fire off an email and be like, hello, creator, you don't know me, but I would really like to play your game and I will run it and I will write a report if you can give me a PDF. And that has tremendous value, though. I'm sure more often than not, designers were delighted uh, to get like a pretty extensive breakdown with photos of happy people playing their game. Um, funny story. This is also partially how I met John LaBeouf Little. So, um, so yeah, I, I got involved with playtesting Dungeon World and I was a a pretty big part of that community. Um, 
if you read the 16 hit point dragon, that's the thing that I wrote in response to somebody on the original playtest forums. Um, and Sage Latora, uh, who's one of the designers, is a big part of John Harper's uh, home group. It's a very long running group with a bunch of really cool people in it. And so Sage recommended me as a playtester to maybe get on board for Blades. So I was one of the earliest uh, external playtests for Blades of the Dark. The game looked nothing at all like it does. And, and the invitation came out of the blue. Like, I just woke up one morning and it said, hey, you've been invited to the Blades in the Dark beta. Would you like to join this group? And I said, yes. So, um. Please be for a game. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, no, no, no. I, I I knew who Harper was. So, like, okay. I, I definitely, I, I, I was like, oh, my gosh. Harper knows who I am. Uh, so, yeah. Lady Blackbird guy. Yeah. And so, uh, so, yeah. That was, uh, well, technically at the time it was Danger Patrol guy, but, uh. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good point. Uh, but yeah, the, um, the, I got involved with Blades of the Dark with the playtesting and, um, I was deeply, deeply involved with it. I think I, I was running groups. Um, I, I sat down at one point and realized that I played like over 40, like ver- different versions of Blades throughout its iterations and, and, and kind of career. And so, um. Being deeply, deeply, deeply involved, when the Kickstarter started, uh, Harper was trying to get the people that were part of that community and were, were playtesting, and, and he felt sort of, like, involved with, and, and you know, they were a big part of the game. Um, he asked us to try and, like, hey, if you could put this out, or, or if you could hack this, what would you do? And uh, that's how I actually got on the hook for uh, Scum and Villainy, Band of Blades, and this game that's not out yet called Throne of the Void. Uh, so... Yeah, that's that's basically how I got involved with Blades in the Dark. Um, so I'm not like you. Um, I want it. Let me know when you're done. Then I'll play your game. <laughs> right. Okay, um, and uh, and I've gotten I mean, I've gotten involved with playtesting with miniature games, not with role playing. I've never been a playtester for role playing games before. And I just found out through time that I just don't enjoy the process, um, and, which makes me far less valuable as a playtester. Right. Because I think you have to have a certain energy and a certain commitment to be, to be able to present something back uh, in exchange for that. Uh, that's obviously not the case for you. So I'd be curious, you know, what is it that that made you like doing that so much and obviously was very good at it i i don't know if it's any specific thing like i it's it's not a maybe it's a personality trait maybe it's the fact that my parents always taught and encouraged critical thinking and analysis uh but like anything like a game design like uh i'm about to be controversial warning uh (laughs) like being a good player um I i think that that being a good player and being a good designer and being a good playtester is like a muscle. I think it's something that you exercise and you become better at. I definitely think that there are plenty of books that can help you do it. I think that there are uh, fields that are interactive, like looking at art critique and things like that. Learning about that will help you do it. And I think that there is a lot of ways that you can sort of flex those muscles and become better at it. But I think that overall it's a, it's a skill. It's something that you practice. Um, I, I cannot tell you why I liked it initially. Maybe it's, uh, the thrill of trying something new and exciting that, that is on the, it's beyond the cutting edge It's the bleeding edge. Um, and it's, uh, it's fun. I think there's also like a really good energy about designers that are really excited about their games. Um, and I think that that's part of what, 
became fascinating to me about conventions. I think that conventions have a lot of good energy. I think that you meet a lot of people that share interests and hobbies that are very similar to you. But I think that one of the main reasons I go to conventions is to see all of the designers and hear about the hot new thing that's going to be, you know, coming off the shelf maybe in two years. I still remember that, like, when some of these Kickstarters completed, some of my friends are like, well, okay, now you can run this game you've been talking about for, like, years. And I'm like... I've run over 300 sessions in the last two years. I'm cooked. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, I can't do this no more. And they're like, but it just came out. I'm like, to you, baby. <laughs> but um, so there are some drawbacks, you know, caveats. I'm sure. Uh, but uh, it is definitely a thing that um, I, I can't, I, I don't have a, a, a pithy canned answer with a good sound bite as to why I love it so much. Well, uh, well but, I think you helped me understand that a little bit. So maybe something that would help me a little bit too is to think about you when you first started playtesting to fully bake Strash, becoming a famous and a sought after playtester. Well, let's talk about that journey a little bit. What did you learn in that process after doing it over and over and over again and, you know, realize possibly, you know, towards the end that you could you truly bring something to the table? Uh, I think that playtesting and providing feedback is actually frequently one of the first steps in game design. Uh, when I first started playtesting, I was, I already had like over a decade of role playing under my belt. So I think that even as young slash we strash, uh, I would look at games and try to pick out, you know, the bits that worked better or I liked more uh, and tell people what they should or could be excited about. Um, and I think that playtesting, one of the things that help, it helped me revise is how to condense uh, a session into a feedback report. Because if you, at the time, I know this is weird to talk about, but in the wild lands of 2005, doing video recordings of sessions, which is not a thing that happened. And so uh, today our, our experiences are somewhat different. Like having yeah. Twitch recordings of your games was just an unthinkable thing 10 years ago. And I, sure. I kind of went through that era where I played when there was no communication between designer and players and you had to make best guesses at what somebody intended in a book. You could theoretically write a letter and if you were very lucky, you could meet someone at a convention. Uh, and then it got to the point where I felt pretty confident um, and I, I didn't feel scared to just like email a designer and ask something because the worst thing that could happen is they wouldn't answer, you know, so yep. who cares? And then we got to the point where you had like almost real time conversations where you'd leave a comment and somebody would reply within 24 hours on social media and now we've got like learn you don't need an older brother because you can just turn on twitch and watch a hundred different channels play games and you can learn how to play it however you need to you don't you don't need to find somebody in your neighborhood to teach you how to play DD. and so uh i think that that play testing uh is also just a continuation of when you first start out you make homebrew rules for things that work better for your table and i think that playtesting is just identifying some weak points and maybe what you might do to you know revise that like that's that's the first steps but i think that as you do it over and over again instead of begging people for a questionnaire and hoping that they get some questions right you start thinking about the sort of questions that you want to ask you listen to designers about what was useful feedback and what wasn't and you start refining sort of how you look at a session and taking it apart and looking at people's impressions because um getting feedback is a very interesting thing um can i can i can i talk about a current game i know it's it's i would love that 
Uh, so we just actually got a 28 pages of feedback back on uh, Project Perseus, which is a game that we're working on. And uh, it's really interesting because occasionally you get back-to-back pieces of feedback that tell you, uh, like one of them said, hey, this operator role that you invented, this like quasi-GM-like meta role that, that, that oversees the spy genre operation, uh, was fantastic. Here's 10 ways that we used it. It was such a thrill. I loved it. And literally the next comment is, we had so much trouble with this role. I don't really understand how it works. Here's some things that we were struggling with. And so what it when you look at two pieces of feedback like that in a vacuum, you think to yourself, is this good or this is bad? But that's actually the wrong question. One of the things that practicing feedback lets you know is that what you really need to do is write text that creates connective tissue between what group one implicitly understands and what group two was struggling with. So what it helps you learn is what you need to write to help people understand the ideas that you're trying to get across. And I think that that's an interesting way to look at playtesting. Uh, young playtester Strash was certainly much more concerned about mechanics, whereas much more baked playtester Strash is looking at the reasons people say things because frequently uh, always their feelings are valid, but what causes them is not always apparent uh, sort of in the things that they say and, and kind of understanding the reasons behind things and how to correct for them is sort of uh, the step maybe between playtesting and design. So I've been talking to you as a playtester in, in, in some sort of bizarre island, which is not the case, because in a lot of ways, a good playtester, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is a funnel and a gatherer and a translator. Um, those are all skills that I would imagine would make a, a good playtester. So I guess my next question would be, is where did you find people to playtest with? Was it always the same group or did you have several groups and were you uh, selective um, and did you learn to translate each of them? I'd, I'd be curious what that process is like. Uh, so one of the side effects of moving frequently as a kid is that you learn how to find and gather people on short notice. Uh, so no, actually I, I play test with a lot of different crews. There are times when occasionally I will have like a party or a board game night or something and a bunch of people will show up and I'm the only commonality between a lot of them because everybody knows me, but nobody knows each other. And it's really funny because I will introduce people to each other as, Hey, uh, this is a Wednesday night person and this is a Tuesday <laughs> night person. Right. And so like, they'll understand which group they're a part of, uh, like implicitly they're like, Oh, you're the folks play testing X. They've got the strings in their head going from the tax. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, uh, so it's, it's just one of those things It's wherever I move, I very quickly find people. I think this is also partially why I don't have a lot of fear going to conventions. I can just sit down at a table with a bunch of strangers and walk out of it with friends that I'm going to play games with the next day. That's um, cool. It's a, it, I, I definitely agree with you, but it's definitely not one group. I do have a home group that I'm, this is my Wednesday night group. It's the same group I've been playing with for years now, but Almost every other group I play with is either ad hoc or just for the length of a specific campaign or project. This is not because uh, I dislike any of my friends. It's just because adult lives have a tendency to fluctuate, right? Like people have to buy houses, they have children, they move, um, jobs change. So which nights of the week you're free change. And so I try to 
make sure that people understand what sort of commitment I'm expecting. And then I do not expect them to adhere to some sort of longstanding every Friday night for the next 30 years, put it on your calendar kind of thing. No contracts are signed. Yeah. yeah no. <laughs> so um, your, your Wednesday night group, is that a opportunity for you just to play or have you subjected them to play testing and put them through this process? Oh, it's pretty much just play testing to is be it? real with you. Uh, but here's the, the secret. If you design with a partner, you get to play a bunch so, for example, I'm uh, in this this Perseus game that I'm talking about. Uh, John LaBeouf Little's running it Wednesday nights, and I'm I'm observing people's reactions and writing a lot of notes and doing a lot of design behind the scenes. But I'm actually a player in the game, so um, it we we definitely swap chairs a lot. Uh, so it's a it's a mix. Sometimes I play, sometimes I run. Harkening uh, back to the days of Ars Magica, um, I think that I have I hold on loosely. I don't feel the need to own a game uh so i have no problem passing it off for somebody else to run uh as a matter of fact um just on a sequence of bad dice rolls uh somebody died in my uh, sunday morning game and uh one of the i i was talking to them afterwards and i was like hey what do you want to what do you want to play next and they're like i'm not i'm not feeling anything right now but i'm and i was like well do you want to run and they were like can I? And I was like, yeah, of course. And so like, I have a character there now and I'm having a blast and oh, somebody else great. is running. So, um, so it's, it's for me, a lot of that is, uh, is very fluid. Like I don't, I don't have this, this control of a world where I have to have all my fingers dug in. Yeah. Uh, I love sharing notes because one of the hallmarks, one, one of the things that I really like about Force in the Dark and PBTA is the fact that even as the GM, uh, even when you do prep and you have, you know, threats and fronts and factions and all that stuff, you still don't know exactly what's going to happen. So I'm not somebody who's basically written a novel and is just running people through it. I'm very much uh, excited to show up and see what the people do because I can't possibly predict it. So I do my prep, but I can hand that prep off to someone and I guarantee you me playing is going to change what the game's going to look like just as much as them playing was going to change what I was going to see that weekend. And so... Um, uh, it helps with this conceit of not trying to like hold on to this multi-year campaign that you've outlined very, very carefully. And therefore, I can just swap places pretty easily. Yeah. So I'd be curious when you're at the table with your partner and you guys are, you know, playtesting either your game or, or maybe, you know, goofing around with another game that you've come across. How often are the observations different depending on who's in who's playing and who's running? Um, I'd be curious to know, like, do you, you walk away from that play test and, you know, he says, you know, this is what I saw. And you're like, nah, that's not what happened. Let me tell you what I saw. I'd be curious what that conversation's like. Uh, happens more often than you'd think, but not all the time. There are plenty of times where I'm like, did you see that? And, and John will just be like, oh, yeah. And so... Um, <laughs> We joke that we're drift compatible. It's a little Pacific Rim gag that we have, but uh, the it, that happens uh, because, among other things, a GM has a different perspective on a game. Uh, it's there's a difference between being a director and being an actor, and I think that. Um, it also takes a lot of attention to sort of keep everything together, keep painting the colors, doing all of these other things. And sometimes you can a miss a thing. And so like later on, it's something that I bring up and you'll hear the like, Oh yeah, that did happen. Um, because I have time to like take notes, right. And, and pay attention to specificities. Whereas a lot of times the GM is involved in all the scenes and all the conversations. And so, um, uh, so that that's a that's a way that we sometimes have a, a difference, not not because 
you know, it's, it's a drastically different observation. But sometimes our observations are different. We draw different conclusions from the same thing we saw. And usually we resolve that by just like tucking it out. And sometimes uh, we say like, okay, well, if it's X, then how would we change it? If it's Y, how would we change it? And then we do an A-B test. Uh, sometimes we'll put out two versions of the same thing or we'll try the same thing again to see if we get a reliable reaction. Um, both of us are scientists. I was about to say, uh, I don't, I don't, it's shockingly systematic. I love it. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like our players are guinea pigs. They're they're absolutely volunteers. And I promise <laughs> that it's a true game and they're having a good time. But I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> uh, well, actually, one of the things that John and I do, this is actually super interesting, is that a lot of times we will look at certain statistics or make certain assumptions that will allow us to run through segments of our game with automation where we're like, so, uh, for example, in Band of Blades, we actually had this like sequence of charts that allow us to play through a, um, like a mission and see sort of what the outcomes are. So a lot of times when we're testing sort of the campaign rules, we skip through actually playing the sessions and we'll play an entire campaign in a setting and just check and see if our numbers are matching up and like whether we can replicate certain things. So we, we are, we are very scientific uh, in our approaches. Both of us are programmers. So like that, that's a thing that'll sometimes shine through. Well, and um, I realize that we missed something here, which is how did you and John meet and how did like, well, when did the two of you become a thing? Uh, so John uh, was actually part of a different design group out here uh, in, in Colorado and they had put out a game called Becoming Heroes. Um, and in that same back room of the train station at Gen Con, I was standing by the whiteboard because if you didn't have a full group, uh, you could just kind of chill and people would show up and go to sit down and play. And if they had a table of like two to three people, you could be like, hey, the game that you're playing sounds really awesome. Would or if, if you want to play by yourself, you know, that's cool. But would you mind an extra player? And you could just do that. And that's, that's cool. how you would meet people. And so uh, John showed up with at the time, I didn't realize it, but it was a bunch of luminaries. And I, I was I, I couldn't recognize anyone by sight at the time. So John showed up and he asked me if I was interested in playing the Becoming Heroes. I was like, well, tell me about your game. And he started this this tirade about the cycle of heroics and all this this other very kind of high level design language i was like no no no, no. i'm asking like this session what it's specifically about and it just looked at me and went like oh it's a doctor who scenario and i was like oh all right let's do it and so i sat down and out of respect for the fact that there was this group of people already with me uh, i let everybody else pick their characters first and so I picked up the last sheet of paper and I flip it over and I go, I guess I'm the doctor. Nice. And John just looks at me out of the corner of his eyes and goes, you're the doctor? And he like reaches into his backpack and pulls out a sonic screwdriver and a piece of psychic paper and puts it in front of me. And I was like, oh, all right, it's on. <laughs> I like you. <laughs> uh, so so I, I ripped that up. I chewed scenery. I had a really good time. Uh, and the next day I went down to the... Uh, floor and I found their little booth and I bought their game and uh, we got to emailing each other and um, this is actually that that whole email protocol I went home and of course I told my friends about all the highlights of the Gen Con trip including the Doctor Who scenario and so uh, there's another friend of mine uh, who would who would run a small house con uh, once a year twice a year once a year um, in 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 Pittsburgh Pennsylvania and uh I wanted to run a Becoming Hero scenario because I kind of love the game. But what I realized is that making the scenarios was actually kind of tricky. So I emailed them and I was like, hey, do you have another adventure? 
And John was like, no, but I'll make one for you. What What do you like? And I was like, giant robots. And the next day I got this zip file labeled Starburst! Three exclamation marks. How funny is that? And so I wrote up a, I wrote up like a five page, uh, you know, play report feedback form. And we got to talking and we got to hanging out the next year at Gen Con. And after that, uh, we just started uh, so at the end of that second Gen Con, of course, we had planned to play like 20 games together. And John was like, oh, there's so many games we haven't played yet. And I, I, I just kind of laughed and I said, well, I guess you'll have to invite me to Con Colorado. And then two weeks later, I got the invite. And so that's awesome. John put together a little house con, house con in Colorado. I, I flew out. I got to be friends with everyone here. And um, yeah, we, we've just been kind of design buddies ever since uh, when my job shifted uh I don't know. It's like eight, nine years ago at this point. Uh, I actually moved out here. And so that's that's when we started designing games together. So uh, he's he's my best friend. Uh, he's he's an excellent game designer. And it's it's just really fun uh, working with him. That's cool. So when I talk to people that work in a partnership, what I often hear about is is the concentric circles and then the overlap Venn diagram. So there's certain things that, you know, you're very good at certain things that he's very good at. And there's the overlap. Do you have a sense of that mapping? Oh, goodness, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I tend to have, uh, I'm a lot better at sussing out uh, corner cases, and I'm definitely a lot better at kind of interpreting how, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm usually the first pass on mechanics and world building. Um, a lot of times, like, I will write down something about world building, and then John will question me, and through the dialogue, like, nice. he'll say, well, how does this work? Or it's like, well, this is fascinating, but you don't have a lot of information on this. What's this about? And then he'll say, well, that that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, and, and we'll talk it through, right? And then that'll become canon. Um, and so uh, there are certain things that I do really, really, really well. Uh, the majority of our books are actually written by John. No kidding. Uh-huh. Uh, I tend to write all of our examples because this goes back to the corner case scenario yep. where I try to showcase the mechanics. So, um, but, and there are certain rules that I write because I'm very particular about language in them, but the majority of the flow and the advice and things like that comes from John. I think that he is definitely, uh, very good at explaining certain things. Like I'm, I'm, I'm much more technically oriented in some ways. And, um, the other thing that I learned is I, I listen to him almost implicitly. It's, it's really funny because there, there are certain times where uh, I prefer rule sets that are very stripped down. I, I don't like wasting a lot of time with additional fluff and, and sort of like going through things very long-windedly. So I, I like authors that have a very brief and to-the-point sort of writing style. But unfortunately, that also means that um, there's a lot of the gaming population that just needs a little more context. Um, this, this is not a slam. It's just, to me, I can I can make the leaps of intuition. So if you actually make them for me, I get kind of annoyed. Uh, but uh, that's not the truth of most, most people right. who play games. And so John's really good at understanding sort of like what's necessary to teach a game. Uh, I joke frequently that whenever I write a game, the first thing I do is I write the GM chapter and I only put one line in it and I say, just run it like Strash. And um, <laughs> and it stays that way for a very long period of time. Yeah. And one of the things that we do in our design that I think is super showing is that once I've run a game a couple of times, uh, like John and I will both work on the rules, so it's not like, you know, he doesn't understand them, but when we flip seats and he runs it, he'll run into questions that he doesn't know how to answer that I'm filling in with intuition or I know how it's supposed to work, but I never wrote it down. Right. And so um, 
it's really interesting because our first pass at the text a lot of times reflects the things that are just assumptions and and he really figures it out and nails it down and God, writes that's it down. valuable so um it's a blast uh also having a person that you know you meet with every week means that you usually get something done every week because you know you know that friday or monday or whatever is coming around and you got to have it done gotta get your shit going um, <laughs> yeah so so accountability is kind of awesome in having a partner um and yeah it's there's definitely times uh i have a problem as a gm sometimes where it's it's like a the GM's version or the game designer's version of the Tsigi principle. Um, so Paul Tsigi wrote that a player should not create both their obstacle and the solution to the obstacle because it's unsatisfying. It's a game design principle I've very much found to be true for myself at the very least. Uh, but John, uh, he he will oftentimes make like tables and stuff in our games because like. If I know if I create the lists of obstacles, I I won't always find them very like enthusiastically charging. Like they don't make my brain explode with ideas. But uh, so he'll he'll fill in our our tables with a bunch of ideas, and it's really interesting because sometimes like you know he'll he'll make a list of twelve, and I have a very good sense of what fits. Like I I can kind of feel the flow. So sometimes it might be like these ten are brilliant, but this one this one's off. I'm like we should switch this one up. So I'll delete it and we'll put something else in. And so, um, but yeah, he does, he does a lot of our charts and stuff. Uh, it's just, we, we, we definitely fill in each other's gaps and strengths. Um, I think that we definitely have things that we are, we are stronger at. He is definitely better at sort of like, uh, symbolism and sort of like large scale stuff and writing things with really solid feelings and explaining things really well. And I think that, uh, some of my strengths are more in the like mechanical ends of things and like right. figuring out systems and abstractions that'll, that'll work. And I think that both of us have like a lot of respect for each other and a lot of like practice and working together. So uh, let me tell you doing a book and when you're staying up till 3am the like fourth or fifth night in a row, uh, it, it, it really makes sure that you're <laughs> friends because that, that friendship doesn't survive <laughs> otherwise. Well, you, you, you have, what a perfect lead into my next question. So I'm watching the montage of the, the, the John and Strash design show, right? And I'm seeing, you know, yeah, this is happening. Yeah, that's a great idea. But then I get to the scene where the two of you butt heads. And I'd be curious, what do you think might be happening there? So when the two of you, obviously you sort through it because uh, you're partners and you work well together. But I would imagine, um, and if and the answer might be, Craig, it never happens. But when oh, when, oh, it happens. when you two butt heads, what what does it tend to be around? Uh stupid stuff uh, <laughs> is really what it what it comes down to. We never argue about the big things. We only argue about the little things. Uh, uh, I, I will tell you that that. Editing in text can sometimes get really, really tense um, because I have certain things that I want to say certain ways. And John is much more of a stickler for things like grammar and whatnot. <laughs> and I'm just like, that goes out the door when it comes to design. Um, You're not getting the feeling across. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, that, that's 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 some of it. But um, we, we, we tend to uh, when we do argue, it tends to be about little things. When we do argue about bigger stuff. A lot of times what happens is, is if, if we cannot come up with a solution, uh, we frequently say, all right, we have to test this and we'll, we'll come up with two separate tests to give it a go. And both of us just agree to abide by the outcomes. That's and that's, awesome. that's one of the ways that we handle it. 
Um, the other thing is that there are certain projects, this happens very, very rarely. I think it's happened like three times total, but there are certain projects that like one of us has slightly more ownership over. Um, like Band of Blades was my baby. So there was like one or two things where I, I basically like, I was like, I have to push for this. Like, I, and, and those are the words that I use. I'm just like, Hey, look, th this is kind of my baby and I really want this. Like is this like a deal breaker? Like, are, are you, are you like, no, this has to be changed or I'm off the project or, or can we just roll with it? And you, you got to trust me for a little bit. Yeah. And, um, and, and so like sometimes, sometimes very, very, very rarely that's a, that's a thing that, that, that sometimes comes up. But yeah, I mean, most of our arguments, like I said, is, is about little things. It's <laughs> Oxford commas, things like that. <laughs> uh, no, actually I, I accept Oxford commas, uh, but I, I, it's just, uh, I, I have a tendency to cap John jokes that I capitalize like a German. Uh, so like my pro, uh, I, 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 put, How do I, I know put, exactly what that means. Right. Right. It's like words with extra meaning are oftentimes capitalized in my texts, which is a thing that you'll find in like fantasy novels in my, my games. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, but it's really funny because it, it drives our editors up a wall and I'm, I'm very adamant about it. And so, uh, there's this running gag. So the thing is, the way that we deal with it is we come up with jokes, you know, and we have certain things that we do all the time. So, like, uh, there was one point where, uh, like, I, I accidentally capitalized something correctly. And John tried explaining the grammatical rule about proper nouns. So now when I do a thing that I absolutely know is not a proper noun, he says, why did you capitalize this? I say, proper noun. And it, it causes both of us to laugh. Oh, that's um, great. <laughs> but I mean, you gotta, you gotta come up with tricks, uh, especially when, when this is a, I mean, it's a process that's about like stamina. Like you've, you've got to like sort of go through it and it's, it's not trivial. And oftentimes it, even if you could do it over some extended period of time, there's deadlines and, and book, book publications that are beholden to things like Gen Con and the clock waits for nobody. So, um, so a lot of times it's a, <laughs> you, you just figure out how to survive the trenches together. Uh, well, and we got to get through this, right? So let's figure yeah. it out and let's get through it. Um, and, you know, obviously, and it's, I can hear it as, as you're discussing this, there's a mutual respect. Uh, there's a mutual admiration and recognition and that, that's, that gets you a long way and allows you to be able to say, Hey, you know, John, this is my baby. So just trust me. And he could ride with it and vice versa. That's cool. And, and it's, it's definitely something where like, we have to sit down and actually take a look at how much of a deal breaker it is and whatnot. And, and, and it goes back to that idea of flex. Like you can't hold on too hard. It's just sometimes something is important and sometimes you can vocalize the whys, And sometimes it's a lot harder to understand. Um, one, this is a skill that John has. That's really, really good is sometimes I can tell you that I like or don't like something, but it's a, a feeling that comes up from my gut. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, uh, he's really skilled at is picking out what might bother me about it. Um, John comes from a family that has a lot of artists in it. So this goes back to the field of art critique. Um, and there are times when we commission art and I'll, I'll tell him like, I don't like it. And he can't go back to the artist and say like, I don't know, just do something different. Right. Like, uh, Michaela was amazing to work with. Um, usually I would put like three lines down and somehow from those three lines, she would get exactly what I meant. But every once in a while, very, very rarely, like maybe like one in 15 or 20 pieces, um, there would be something off. And sometimes I would be able to vocalize immediately exactly what it was. And sometimes I would just say, this is wrong. And John would be able to tell me 
why I thought it was wrong by asking really strange questions. Like he's like, well, can you pick out an image that you think might work? And he's like, <laughs> I know that the characters are very wrong, but like a pose. And like, then he would be like, I see. So what you're actually looking at is a position of strength because the way the camera is shooting this and he would break it down. And I would be like, oh, that's cool. And then I would get language so that the next time something like that came up, I could actually, uh, you know, defend what I was saying and why I was saying like a lot more clearly and succinctly. So well, and learning that language at a meta sense is huge, right? To be able to have that conversation with any artist. But I would also imagine it's important to have with individual artists where you have a, your own language and you use one language with artist A and another one with artist B. And that's got to be a process as well. All right. So, guys, we're going to take another quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to start talking about actual games that are being made. I want to talk about Scum and Villainy. We'll be right back. This is Sean. You may have heard of me from such movies as Brett and Sean Go to Illinois, Two Motorcycles, One Stick of Dynamite, and Gaming and BS, what kind of RPG podcast is that? After my NFTs were stolen, I decided to become a patron of Third Floor Wars. The content is great, and it costs me less than a good shot of liquor. So consider becoming a patron. It may just land you your next big role. Head over to patreon.com forward slash third floor wars. Tell Craig Sean sent you. So you're playtesting, um, you're working on the progression and you start to see um, blades in the dark start to form and start to develop. Uh, when when is the first time the hack comes into play? So it sounds like there was a reach out to say, is what, what, who has an interest in hacking this? What, what happens in your brain? Uh, actually, it was so speaking of uh, the fellow who, who had the once a year house con in Pittsburgh, um, we were in the middle of playing a different game and uh he was like, we, we were playtesting blades. That was one of our, our weeknight games. And, uh, we were playing, I think it was like the FFG Star Wars game. And uh, there was just this like one point where we were trying to figure out rules about money and it was kind of a headache. And he was just like, why can't we just make it coin? Why can't there, why, why can't this just be blasters in the dark? And so uh, th- that was that was the thing we all laughed about. And then we played it next week because that's how I work. Um <laughs> And Don't so, say it out loud. <laughs> well, yeah. And so so I uh, the the name Scum and Villainy was actually a, it was a last minute joke. Uh, and I've got some flack for it uh, because what happened is when John asked for like the emails, it was like in the 11th hour. It was like late some evening. We had like a limited number of hours to submit pitches. And so um, I basically just went to a bunch of my gaming friends and I was like, if there was a. Uh, you know, Blitz in the Dark hack for like space opera, what would it be called? And somebody said Scum and Villainy. And it just, it was supposed to be a working title. It wasn't supposed to be like the real thing. And then uh, it, it just kind of got glued on. And then I, I tried changing it, but people would just be like, what are you talking about? Are you talking about Scum and Villainy? And I was like, okay, I'm kind of stuck with this. And it's really funny because I've, I've actually had some big name comic authors on the internet make fun of me for the fact that this name was 
<laughs> stuck to the game. What is, what's the basis of the critique of that, though? Oh, they just said that they, uh, well, I, I believe the exact words were, uh, we will not play this game because this title is so unoriginal that anything <laughs> inside this book couldn't possibly be original either. And I was like, Lord, ouch, but OK. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, actually, it's really funny. I am now on better terms with said person and I'm Isn't actually playtesting a game and they've played it since. So uh, it's just one of those things like you can't. It's really funny. They said this online. The first thing that happened is we made 75 sales. Like, That's no, funny. <laughs> you, you can't take it too personally. Right. Like, and, and no, no publicity is bad publicity. Yeah, I was like, if you want to shit on it some more, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but like, yeah, it was really funny because I was following them for their comic work and I saw it literally like seconds after they posted. I was like, ouch. But acceptable. I guess that's a critique. I can't take it too personally, though, because clearly I haven't read the game. So it's not that you think the game is bad. Uh, and they were like, oh, oh. And I was like, it's all right. Don't worry. I'm not that mad. <laughs> so um, it's it's one of those things. It's like when you when you put out a work, there's going to be people that love it. There's going to be people that don't get it. And then there's going to be people that rant about it on the Internet. This is just a fact of our existence now. And yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. keep hearing that you have to build up a certain lo- level of Internet armor. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and so, yeah, th- this is uh, one of the things that I tell game designers is make games that you want to play or you want to run. M- more importantly, you want to run, uh, because if you don't uh, playtesting is going to be a bear <laughs> and you're going to hate having conversations afterwards about it. And so uh, it, I happen to be blessed by the fact that I like a lot of very kind of center mass mainstream nerdy things. So a lot of the games that I make are for me, but it just so happens that a lot of other people happen to like them too. Well, that was going to be so, my next question, Strasha. So you, you, you talk about, you know, playing FFG Star Wars or some version of Star Wars. And then, you know, this came about, you know, as kind of a joke conversation. Now I've designed a game for the next week. Were you a space opera fan before that? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So it, it wasn't that you just totally. happened to be playing that and that's what led to this. No, 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 no. But I mean, at the same time, two weeks before that, I had never considered making a space opera game per se. I was just like, I don't know. This one's on the shelf. I'll buy this one. Let's play that. And we did. We had a good time. It wasn't it wasn't bad. It's just um, uh, one of my critiques. And I've said this in public is is that it doesn't explain how like to, to it doesn't tell you how much money to give people for stuff. And uh, it was it was really funny because like the fact that people needed credits also meant that they were engaging in behaviors that were not very movie like, like, you know, looting uh, stuff and whatnot. And I was like, OK, this this seems to have the wrong incentives. So, like, it was just something that we did because uh, people were p- familiar with A and some people were struggling with some of the mechanics of B, including the GM. Uh, and so ma- making the transition was was kind of like it. This is a natural step for a lot of game designers is like you just put together a thing for your Tuesday night group or whatever. Um, and the thing is that if everybody at the table kind of knows what you're talking about, you don't actually have to write like a 30 page thing. You just write the minimum necessary to put it on the table. And, then and you're there, there, right? You're there to show yeah. them the game and to, and, and to walk through it and iterate on the spot too, I would imagine um, yep. as you're going through that. So if I were to break into your house and find your notes for that original version that came back on week one and then open up my copy of Scum and Villainy, what would I see that it was not changed? What was there from the very beginning? Uh, some of the playbooks uh, have been around the whole time, like the scoundrel, the muscle, right? Because like the scoundrel is a, a a very standard captain of a starship, whether you're 
uh, Gene Starwin from Outlaw Star or your Captain Mal from Firefly or, you know, your Han Solo. Like these are very standard archetypes and sort of like the big, silent, beefy brawler type, uh, whether you're a, a, a... deadly robot or uh, a, a fuzzy alien or whatever is also another um, uh, another kind of archetype. So like uh, a bunch of the archetypes stayed uh, pretty, pretty locked in from the get go. Um, but almost everything else changed. One of the things that we realized early on in terms of our design is that we couldn't do cruise blade style. So we switched to ships and that was a, that was kind of a thing. Um, so just, just incidentally, that's when you hooked me. Uh, so when I got my copy of it, I was flipping through it and I was pretty new to Blades at the time, right? Uh, so there's a whole f- series of discovery. I find Blades and I realize there's all this hack shit out there. I'm like, I love Star Wars, so I'm going to get that. And I was flipping through it and I was like, oh, instead of cruise their ships, I'm in. And I remember flipping through it, so I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, but that was, a, that was a solving a problem, right? Uh, more than that, I think that if you watch any sort of behind the scenes footage on literally every show, um, the the producers will talk about how the ship is the additional character, right? Like, and almost every show is either named after the ship or the ship features prominently. Good point. Like, you know, the Bebop is for Cowboy Bebop. You know, uh, it's 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 like the the Galactica is is you know part of Star Galactica, right? Like so, like uh, it, it's it's just one of those things. Is like the ship is either the title of the show, uh, or it's a, a very very major component, right? Like Farscape is not called Moya, but <laughs> I know what you're yeah, saying, though. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it, I think that and I think that if you're doing any sort of genre emulation, even if the goal isn't genre emulation itself, in order to be authentic and help people sort of portray that, you have to look at it. And that's actually a question I get asked about Scum and Villainy a lot, um, is there's a bunch of people who are like, well, why can't I run a space crime army? And I was like, well, what show is that? Because I haven't seen it. Like, it's always the spunky band of like seven or so. So you got to kind of look at... um, sort of like your your inspirations and you have to be either authentic to them or find the thing that's interesting about that um which i think scum and villainy very much plays into the sort of heroic angle a little bit more than blades i think that blades definitely blades tends to be a lot more gritty and i think that scum and villainy it's easier to have that scoundrel with a heart of gold motif uh definitely easier to play a more heroic game uh because among other things you're even though you're in a society that is kind of highly corrupt. You're you're still fighting against sort of like larger ideas and for larger ideas. I think maybe. Um, but yeah, it's it's the the whole idea is is focused on on a slightly more influential angle in a certain way. Blades tends to start with a conceit that the city is bigger than you are, and even though that's true in Scum and Villainy, a lot of times Scum and Villainy games end with the crew making a big difference and changing the universe in some way, some meaningful way. And to your point, it's the touchstones, right? It's what we're familiar with. It's the language we're familiar with. And it's it's this implicit, like, promise that you're making saying, hey, this is what my game's about. And if you come here, this is what it's going to look and feel like. This is, And if I come in there and I start playing Scum and Villainy, it starts feeling like Duskfall and be like, nah, this is, this is not what I signed up for. I'm just going to yeah. go play Blades. Uh, um, but apparently there's a lot of people that wanted that. It's And and yeah, that's, it's actually shocking. But I, I think that it's important to understand something. Um there are a lot of people that want to make like the game for everybody. And I I don't know that that's possible and much less healthy. I tend to have opinions 
And I tend to state them boldly. I'm like, this is what this game is about, and it's not going to be for everyone. And I think that um, Scum and Villainy in particular has a lot of touchstones amongst a bunch of different genres of uh, sci-fi and space opera. So it has a bit more variance, but like you can see this a lot more clearly in Band of Blades, where it very much goes for a very specific audience. And they will love it, but it's not a game for everyone. And so... Um, so yeah, I, th I think that with Scum and Villainy, I definitely have an opinion of what I want out of my space opera and why. And I think that I, hopefully that comes across in the game. Do you remember the point, Strauss, where you've said to yourself, um, I, this is done? Like, do you, was there a night? Was there a change? Yep. Were, uh, tell me about that. It was uh, final underscore final. <laughs> <laughs> The file. <laughs> Dot PDF. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was really funny because the next thing that I said, uh, I still remember shipping off the files and we were incredibly drained. And I, I told John, I said, the files are done and you have one job left. He said, what's that? And I was like, get reservations at a restaurant so that we can stuff our faces full of food and just celebrate being done. <laughs> so... Um, but uh, that's also actually a lie because the moment it goes out, someone's going to notice a typo and then your project manager is going to be like, well, do you think you change this in the PDF? And there's still lots of things to do afterwards, you know. I guess what I'm trying to try to fish for, uh, Strash, is like, when is a pencil down moment? And let's use Scum and Villainy in particular, where you finally said, look, I, we're done. And was it a we have to stop situation or was a ha ha situation? Uh, well, there's stages, right? I think that we had the rules. Actually, we had the rules locked in before. Uh, so funny fact, um, Scum and Villainy was a stretch goal for Blades in the Dark. And today, a lot of creators will go to Kickstarter and get funding for their projects and whatnot. But because that was the case, we promised everybody a PDF and John and I were working on it. And one of the things that I, John was like, oh, I just really want to have this thing that we've put so much effort in, in my hands. Like I want it to be real. And literally, we were flying out and we were talking on the plane when I said to him, I said, John, you have to kind of kill that dream in your heart. Because uh, we asked a couple of our friends and no one's going to publish it and I don't want to ship things from my living room. So I was like, we will never have this game. And literally the next day, we're sitting at lunch with Sean and Sean is like, you will have like to make you an offer to publish Scum and Villainy. And John just looked at me real smugly and I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, it's it's one of those moments where we just both started laughing and, I and bet. the other people at the, the lunch were looking at us. And so um, so I think that there's like stages of done, right? Like there is the done when you you push you know, your playtest packet, and then you realize you have to write the book, and then there's the day when the text is done, then you start the layout, then the layout's done, then you have to do the editing, then the editing's done. There's a whole bunch of duns. And so um, it, it's, it's kind of hard. Like, I, I mean, I have to... There's a certain point where you just, like, push publish. Like, you, you send the email in, you're like, here is the final file, please approve. And when they say approved, you're like, okay, now we're done. And so uh, for me, that moment was actually the day when we got um, it wasn't it wasn't the day I, I pushed the, the files. I actually think I lied to you about that very slightly. It was like in the next day or two when when Fred approved sending it to the printer, because like once it goes to the printer, it's out of my hands and I can't change it anymore. So even if I wanted to, it's finished. Um, so it's it's one of those things. Uh, so like that's that's a milestone for me. Like when it when it goes to print, it's uh, as you say, like ship it or, you know, you've got your your print cut off in, in newspapers and whatnot. So 
at that point you're you're done done but until that moment even it's really funny for blades uh John had a print deadline and and less than 48 hours before that he still made large uh like mechanical changes and Sean sent it to me and I was like this is going to have the following effects and then like some of the stuff stayed and some of the stuff changed God, and it was it was wild because like he was making major revisions like literally like stressing you hours. out I, well it's not it's not me like oh Sean was super stressed <laughs> like, uh, I was like look I'm, I'm here to advise I know it's 2 a.m but this is, this is how it goes um, make it stop <laughs> but uh yeah for for us uh uh for us yeah you, you it's it's hard to like like the, uh, yeah if, if i have to pick a done done moment it's, it's the moment it goes to print yeah that makes sense so i'd be curious was this the first time that you opened up a cardboard box and saw a, a pile of a book you made yes absolutely and what was that moment like uh it's hard to explain because i'm i'm a i respect pdfs 100 percent. as a matter of fact the majority of games i run is from pdf so like i don't have some sort of judgment about right. the physical being real but the moment you hold it in your hands, it it, it is somehow more real. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't there's nothing I can say to explain it until you write a thing and you've put so many countless hours that it's this concept that you've you've kind of transformed and, and you go through all sorts of feelings where like, you know, you love it and then it's three of the six night in a row and <laughs> I don't want to see it again. It. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then and then when it shows up there's usually a gap because it like takes like a month or two for print and shipping and all sorts of other stuff. And so like when it shows up, it, it really is something. It's, it's kind of a magical moment. Um, and, and the other magical moment is if you ever get a translation of your game, seeing the same game in a different language is wild. I bet. Uh, Especially if you put them next to each other on the shelf, it's, it's kind of a thing. (laughs) So, because they look the same, except like sometimes like they're just, they're clearly not. So yeah, it's, uh, that's that's pretty awesome too. Uh, I, but yeah, oh, that's cool. Um, so you pl- you've play tested. You go through iterations. You finally hit publish. You get the box of books back. Holy shit! Like I made a thing and it's printed and I'm holding it right now. Then it goes out in the wild, mm-hmm. outside of your control, to tables that you didn't send notes to to say this is how I wanted you to try it this week because we're trying something out. Um, what was it like? when you first started getting the wave back, right? So you, you put this thing out there and it it's, starts it's, coming back. It's not how it works for us. Uh, one of the things that I picked up, I don't know if this was just like a technique that the Forge started or if, if game shifted, but all of the designers I admired uh, would design in the wild. So your playtests would be out way before your book was. Got it. Uh, which means that the first waves are from your, you know, playtest kits uh, and you've already gotten dozens of iterations of feedback. You've yeah. updated rules left and right. Uh, you've argued with fans on the internet, uh, you know, and, th- and they've explained why something is confusing to them and whatnot. And it's just, uh, it's one of those things. Like it's, uh, you've already been in this process for so long that the additional people writing is not actually that huge a change. Um, what does happen is occasionally you see people you didn't expect pick it up. Uh, so Scum and Villainy, for example, when it came out, it did okay. Like it wasn't like doing poorly. But we had a jump. Uh, Friends at the Table picked it up, which is a very big, popular actual play podcast. Um, and Austin Walker GMs, and he took Scum and Villainy and, and made it a season of uh, one of their one of their shows. And the moment that episode hit, we sold in one month what we had sold a year before that. Wow! Yeah, it's huge. Uh, so like 
that was a thing I didn't expect is people that you sometimes see on YouTube videos or getting interviewed suddenly talking about your thing. That's a shock. Yeah. Um, I, I, like I said, comic book artists I had followed for years suddenly having an opinion that, that <laughs> I didn't expect to happen. Uh, that's weird. Uh, yeah. and kind of cool, but like, but definitely weird. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, and, and uh, sometimes it's actually kind of fun. Okay, can I can I share a, a real funny story? No. Um, okay. <laughs> I'll take Please. Okay, of course. Um, it's interesting because uh, there is sometimes the, there's the product which takes on a life of its own and people do some stuff with it. Like you will not – I keep uh, – somebody posted this on Twitter. They don't know me. Uh, and I don't actually know them. It was something that came across my feed because somebody shared it. But apparently a group of friends had played Scum and Villainy for the better part of a year. And it meant a lot to them. And so what they did was they cosplayed in character and they went to a Ren fair and pretended they were landing on some like planet that was, you know, and, and they took photos. And I just, I, I keep this because it, it shows me that somebody who is not my friend loved it so much that they did this thing. Like that, that's an, that's a that's a that's actually my goal. I don't I don't actually care about the big name reviewers. I don't care about the big name names. I I do care that at least one person really gets it and means so much to them that it like affects their life. And like that's that's all a designer or at least that's that's what this designer really wants. And so um the other thing that's really fun is there's a lot of people that don't know who you are and they'll talk <laughs> about your game right in front of you and tell you about it. Uh, one of my favorite moments is I walked into an elevator at a convention and there's there's a guy standing there holding a stack of like eight books, eight scum and villainy books. And I look at it and I go, scum and villainy, nice choice. And everybody else in the elevator knows who I am except for this person. And he's like, oh, have you heard of it? Uh, I really like it. I ran it. And so I don't live in the States and I, I want to bring back some books for all of the people that want oh my it. God, you know? How cool is and that? And I was like. Oh, that's super cool. And he's like, do you know the game? And I was like, oh, yeah, I worked on it. He goes, what did you do? And I just look at him point blank and I go layout. And then I walk off the elevator. (laughs) I picked the (laughs) font. Which is true. but (laughs) Oh, that's cool. But I would imagine, you know, just and I have a small microcosm of this, so it doesn't compare. But like finding out that somebody played your freaking game for a year and a half. Yeah. Like. Like, like, like my only version of this, and it's not comparable, but like, I'll get messages that say, hey, what is what is the next episode of this actual play coming out? And and I'm like, I can't believe you give a shit. <laughs> I can't believe that, like, you're you're anxious to find out when the next episode is coming out, because I think it's garbage. But I love that you love it. Like that's but to, to have somebody with a stack of books like that is a big deal or to find out. Yeah, we've been playing Scum and Villainy for two years. That's just got to be. Yeah, it's it's kind of shocking. Um, yeah. There's things that you don't anticipate ever uh, from game design. I got I got this weird email when we put out Band of Blades. Wait, are we allowed to talk about Band of Blades? We, or do are. we have to talk about okay. Uh, so we put out Band of Blades, and I got this email from an Australian teacher, uh, which just said, "Hey, um, so I'm planning to run this for 40 people," and I was like, "It's designed for four and." Uh, you know, it, it, there's a certain point where you're like, look, you're outside of the fence posts, you know, 
I, I, I will try and tell you things that you can anticipate as problems, but, you know. It's on you now. Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you, are, you are beyond beyond the veil. I have nothing to support yeah. you here. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one of the things that she wanted to do was she wanted to break up her classrooms into squads and, and do a bunch of stuff like that. And so I, I talked to her. I was like, here's how your resources are going to change. Here's some stuff that you can anticipate as problems. Here's things you can do to compensate for that. And... I didn't hear anything for a while, and I just assumed it's, it's... Sometimes you get an email from someone who's just like, I'm thinking of hacking your game to do this thing, and you never hear about it again. Right. And and it's not that, you know, I'm not, I'm not judging anyone. It's just that that happens. That's and so, how... That's, more often than not, that's what happens. Yeah. And so uh, I didn't hear about this, and then she sent me the dissertation that she wrote for the Board of Education on the experience. And uh, apparently she was teaching, like children that struggled like they were non-functional in regular classrooms and you're blowing my mind right now this experience changed them completely like they had a kid that wasn't allowed to be alone with anyone else because apparently they were extremely like rude and abusive like they would uh call people names and everything and she caught him helping somebody do their dishes and when she asked him why uh, this kid said, uh, because I'm a Barton and, and you know, we help our friends, like we get plus one D when we help our friends and things like that. And you're you're reading about like and, and it's not one thing because like uh, I, I don't actually know the names of any of, the, any of these kids. Um, they're coded. It's 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 got like substitutions for names and whatnot. It's a technical research paper with like coding and observations. But to understand that you have affected the lives of 40 people is just mind blowing. Um, it, it's, it's just, it, it, it's, it makes you, well, like for weeks I wandered around, like I was made of titanium, like I was bulletproof because like, it doesn't St- matter Strash, if I, I'm getting emotional and I didn't make the game. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's wild because you, you, we don't understand even necessarily how much some of this stuff can affect people. And hearing about how some of these kids that were nonverbal now are running games for their friends are, is it just. That's incredible. If I do nothing else in my life, I feel like I've accomplished something. And, and, and I mean, that's like a weird thing to say on a podcast about role playing games, which are generally considered this fringe hobby that not even the majority of the population knows about. And it's uh, I don't know. It's it's a powerful experience. It's, it's it something makes sense that to me. really touches you deeply and tells you why we do this. Right. Like that. That stories are the currency of the soul. And like playing these games we're making them together and that's a powerful thing for humans so it's something that i try to talk about a lot which is just how unique it is that that yes we call it we call it tabletop gaming right and tabletop gaming covers a lot of things but god damn it rpgs are different yeah (laughs) role-playing games are different um and uh it's i've got a whole a whole dissertation argument that i've put out there um piece by piece in little podcasts just saying it's the apex of gaming in my opinion uh for a lot of the things that you just talked about um so we've hinted at uh band of blades i want to take a quick break and i want to talk about it because um as many um surprising changes that i saw in my mind from scum and villainy i expected it to be a clone and it wasn't and i was delighted when i found i felt like i was forensic you know going through and going ooh, ooh, this was different this has changed uh band of blades uh shocked me and that was the second game that i bought a year so let's talk about that when we come back This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to 
right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So I came across both titles at the same time, and and, uh, and, and it's because I wasn't in, I, I played role-playing young, took 20 years off of role-playing for various reasons, came back to role-playing about two years ago. So a lot of this stuff has, had already been baked, but it was all brand new to me, right? So for me, Band of Blades and Scum and Villainy and Blades in the Dark all come to my face at the exact same time. And I, I grab Blades, and I'm like, I really freaking like this. And then I go, that means that you got to go get this one. And I pick up Scum and Villainy. I'm like, I really like this too. And then I got Band of Blades, and I liked it, but it surprised me. So let's take a step back. Um, was Scum and Villainy done and then Blades, or is there some overlap? No, it was done, done. Scum and Villainy was out the door before we started working on Band of Blades. Okay, so if if we were to find the initial seed of you playing FFG's Game of Thrones, I don't know what you'd be playing that would have inspired it. What's the origin story on Band of Blades? Uh, so one of the things that I've noticed about myself is that uh, this is actually really interesting. I learned about myself by designing this game. Um, I've always liked a little horror mixed into my fantasy, a little bit of dark fantasy, if you will. Um, and it's something that has always piqued my interest. Uh, so I'm, I've been, I, I honestly, if you ask me about it, I would said like, well, maybe it's cause I started with Warhammer, but it's not true. It's, it's kind of been a, a running thing. And so one of the things that I discovered in the process of making it is that growing up, I, uh, the fairy tales that I grew up with are full of, of blood and some very dark things. And it's sort of where I come from, uh, you know, as part of my childhood. So my fantasy tends to be tinged with a lot of that. Um, and so I, I think what it was is um, I told uh, I, I, I told John, actually, that I wanted to make a kind of like a fantasy-ish version of Blades and one of the things that John does is he is very good at breaking down the core conceit of why we're making a game. Like, what is this game about? Why would you play this and not? Um, and the question here is why Band of Blades and not generic fantasy X or dark fantasy Y? You know, like why play Band of Blades and not Shadow of the Demon Lord or whatever? And the answer is because the it, it's not there's this lie that you need one game for everything, or you could use one game for everything. I think that, um, but I do think that you should probably think about whenever you play a game, why are we playing this game and not another one? And one of the things that this forced me to do is to break down 
what about this genre I was really interested in and sort of what thematic elements and things I want to pull on and why is this different than other examples? Um, so one of the things that I, I talked about is that uh, Band of Blades has this uh, World War II experience, but it's much more European. Yeah. Um, I, uh, it's, there, is, there is a difference between uh, you know, reading something in a, in a historical document or like wa- watching a movie and like walking down the street, skipping as a kid, dragging your hand across a wall, feeling 40 millimeter shells still, you know, embedded in it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's one of those things. Uh, and so like Band of Blades is not the heroic hoorah. We just get together and, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting. We're, we're the good guys. The lich lord you know. or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so like it, one of, one of, one of the conceits of the game that it starts with is, um, it, it says that you lost before you even begin. Right. Which is like, so cool. And, and so, so what you're doing is you're playing this frantic retreat, which is actually based on on a historic thing that happened. And so, uh, the other thing that that was we really kind of brought to it is um, John was a military brat, and so like he brings a, a like we talked a lot about like how to convey this feeling of being part of something larger and having to trust forces, yeah, uh, and maybe technology. In our case, it's magic, right? Like chosen, but like yep. things that you don't even perfectly understand, but you need them to work and you desperately want them to work, but they're not a hundred percent reliable. And so like a lot of band of blades is, is just us exploring some of these themes that maybe we don't see in other games and trying to like fine tune it to a very specific experience. And before we began, uh, we sat down and we, we talked to each other. And, and one of the things that we agreed on is that, this game was going to hopefully be very powerful for the people that it was designed for, but it was definitely not going to be a game for everyone. Right. And you see that a lot, actually. Some of the feedback is a lot of people are like, well, my players really don't like it when a lot of their comrades die. And I, you know, I'm like, I understand it's not supposed to feel good. Uh, I'm sorry, but and they're like, well, what if we just don't do that? And I'm like, well, that's fine, but you're not playing this game then. And so, uh, like, like it's it's totally okay. There are other ones. I have some suggestions, but like maybe this is not the game for you. That's all I. I, I, I and that's I okay. And that's okay. Yes. And so, um, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think that everybody needs to play my games, but I definitely. A band of blades definitely has like a bit more of a statement to make, and I think that it's a lot less like center of the Hollywood sort of experience. And and so, yeah. I re- I remember specifically we were in a restaurant. We were eating noodles, and we were talking about. What makes this brand of fantasy different than every other brand of fantasy? Like it's it, it started as a joke, you know, like, hey, if if you were to make a, a Blades fantasy game, what would you what would you want to do? That was going to be my question. And you've answered it already, which is what, what was first, the, the, the war theme and the or fantasy? And it sounds like fantasy was the first. Or it was, was it all fan- at the same time. Fantasy was first. And I think that. Um, uh it was really funny because we sat there and we talked. It was supposed to be like 45 minute, one hour lunch or whatever. And we ended up talking for like three or four hours. And then I wrote a pitch for it. And then I sent it to Harper for the Kickstarter. And that got added as a stretch goal. But we we talked about it until we had like the tone. And we understood like some of the like core pieces of it. But yeah, it started out as kind of like a joke. Like, hey, um... You know, like, let's let's do let's do some fantasy. And I was like, yeah, but if I'm doing fantasy, it's probably going to be dark fantasy. And so, like, we talked about, like, what does that mean? What are we trying to get across? And the whole, like, 
military theme, the, the idea that you're just specifically a military unit. Um, actually, I think we had hashed it out on that first day. Now that I think about it, if you read the if you read the blurb on the Kickstarter, I think it's still there. But yeah, it it definitely that was definitely the second component. I think the mm-hmm. first component was 100. percent Let's just let's just have some dark fantasy, and then what we decided is that we we didn't want to do like dark fantasy heroes, and so like we made it very very specific. Um, so so yeah. I'd be curious when you're creating a Forge in the Dark game. Is there a pro- and I would have no idea what this process is like, which is where this question is coming from. Do you say this is the shell, right? These are things that make it forged in the dark. Yep. Here's my ideas. To how do I slot that in with crew versus starship, right? Like it, it, I'm trying to understand that process and I have no idea what that would be like. Uh, so the first thing that we do, uh, so I 100% don't want to put words in anyone's mouth and I sure. don't want to pretend that I know the secrets of all Forged in Dark things and therefore this statement is 100% true but I've actually right. done speeches on like what does Forged in Dark mean in my opinion yeah. and John and I have played a lot of different versions and we've tested a lot of things and there's a couple of things that I think are key to it uh, the idea of position and effect the idea that what you do in the fiction affects the mechanics was the initial seed that created the system and I think that yep. if you take it out it stops feeling like blades um, there's a bunch of other things like stress gets converted into pushes and resistances. The idea that as a character, you can say, I'm going to go all in. Uh, it has kind of like a little bit of like a gambling feel where you put everything on the line and you push. Like that's definitely a thing that when we took out, it stopped feeling like blades. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, resistances, the ability to say no, the GM says like this horrible thing happens and then you just put your hands down and you're like, no, I'm going to resist that. And this is how yeah. it's going to happen. That is very blades. Gotcha. So like those those are kind of like core conceits. And then after that, um, there's a bunch of things that I think are I'm not going to call them optional. But what I'm going to say is that you need to consider what the purpose of it is in the game and then decide if it fits in your game. Mm-hmm. So like. Harper in Blades in the Dark makes a city that has electro barriers and a toxic, non-survivable environment outside it. So in a modern day BV setting, after you perform a heist, you execute the getaway and then you leave the city and you lay low somewhere else, which is something that we implemented in Scum and Villainy with the systems and whatnot. But like in, in Blades, you can't. And part of the reason is because he wants you every time you make a move for the world to resist it and make right. a counter move, right? Like if you take turf, that was somebody's and now they're angry. And so that's going to create story. And so if you want to make a game that doesn't have turf, that's fine, but you need to consider what generates that push. Like how does the world react to the players so that it doesn't feel static and the players aren't like superheroes acting and the world is only reacting. Like the the world actually pushes back and what makes that happen. And so taking apart all of the pieces and and testing it you have to like hold it up almost like a like a glass in front of a light and like look for the fingerprints and see like yeah. okay does this fit how do we put this in what does this look like and so um there's a lot of things that go into this um we're going to talk about games and inspiration i believe a few weeks before that conversation uh somebody had literally said that it's impossible to hack blades because the structure is so strong that nobody could actually bust out of the original format. And I went, um, really? And so, of course, uh, this is, uh, well, I, I don't take this as like a, a, a personal grievance. I look at it as uh, discussions 
notable physicists uh, used to do these thought experiments. They would have salons and somebody would say, like, I think this is impossible. And then somebody would propose an experiment that would prove or disprove it. And I think that a lot of times when I hear an argument like that, what I think to myself is, but how would I do that? How can I prove that this is doable? And this this came from one of those thought exercises. Um, The other thing is that uh, there is one of the things we discovered. So talking about uh, one of just giving context to your viewers, uh, if you play Band of Blades, there is these meta roles where you play like uh, the quartermaster, the commander and so on, like these larger than life roles in the army that are also responsible for like making the sort of downtimes function. Right. And so one of the things that we realized is that um, it's actually really hard to GM Band of Blades. And hmm. so I, I don't think that round robbing GMing is a solution for most GMless things. So one of the things that we did was in order to demonstrate a solution, um, I think what I, I I think I was the the instigator of this, but like both of us definitely worked on on actually making it come real. But uh, we fractured a lot of the jobs of the GM so that the GM didn't have to micromanage the game. The players would actually be given and and it's written in very military. Uh, language so it says like these are your duties right mm-hmm. and so you have the things that you're supposed to do during downtimes to make the game function so in other blades games you know you you have the gm who's basically like overseeing the process of downtime and making sure that everyone's doing the actions that they're supposed to and whatnot whereas here that's actually been distributed to the players and the gm has a very specific role which is like rolling up the missions and running them and keeping the tone consistent and all this other stuff so like uh it's 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 a way of distributing responsibilities and telling the players that they're responsible for running certain portions of the game and then like couching it in this very playful kind of like these are your duties language which both reinforces the thematic elements and also like gives us a clear easy context in which we can kind of teach it so well you're telling people how to play the game which which is super important (laughs) so yeah um but you were mentioning that there's a lot of departures how do you do it um i think it's just some of it the first time you try it um there's a lot of try and fail you you try a piece and it doesn't work out you change it you see if it works or doesn't the more you do this with a, a similar system the more quickly you can anticipate what the outcomes of certain changes are right and so um most people aren't going to see very 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 early drafts the moment you mention you're working on a game, someone's like, cool, why don't you send it to me tomorrow? And you're like, whoa, okay, no. Uh, but It's four sentences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's like, did I mention it's written on napkins? Um, I actually, when I, when I first met John Harper and uh, he mentioned that he would make a game in a weekend, I, it kind of blew my mind. Like, I, I couldn't comprehend it. it. It just, it was mind-boggling. But... He didn't tell you it was a shitty game. He just said he made it. No, actually, they're pretty playable. I've played some of them. They're it's, real good, I, I'm actually. making a joke. Yeah, no, I'm making um, a joke. But the thing is that as I've gotten better at layout, and, and a lot of people are like, oh, you're so good at this. I'm like, well, I've been doing it like almost every week for like five years. I hope I got a little better. Um, so like now that I'm a lot more fluid in, in speed, I can actually make a character sheet like in a weekend as well. And I'll just That's awesome. play test something with people. So like somebody will say like, Hey, I'm moving next week. And I'm like, cool. Do we want to play a game? All right. I'll make us something. And, and next week we're playing. And so, um, is that muscle memory? Is that just practice? Yeah. It's just practice. It's yeah. just speed. Um, it, it's definitely like a lot of people are like, Oh, it's talent. No, it's literally just practice. Yeah. Um, when I started, it took me, 
uh, it took me two and a half months to make the Scum and Villainy sheet. Um, it took me four weeks to make the Band of Blades sheet. Yep. And uh, most of the other sheets I make are in sub one hour now. And so, like, even really complex sheets that I'm iterating on multiple times will not take more than a day per iteration. So right. it's it's just practice. It's just yep. time time spent understanding your toolkit, knowing how to apply it quickly. Um, and, I mean, that's, that's just... Sometimes games have this, like, thing that you've wanted to do forever, and then you do it... Uh, and sometimes games are just I don't know we we so I'm 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 working on a bed uh, on on a on a game called Spell and Blade and it literally happened because the pandemic started and my group was like we just watched The Witcher and we kind of want to play a weird fantasy ish game what do you think and we had a first draft by next week and that's that's how that got started so sometimes it's just a like it starts out as a joke and everybody yeah. knows not to like look at it too closely but then if we're having fun then we revise it and we revise it some more and then eventually it becomes a thing so well and this is where i'm going to pull back your playtesting experience because you have experience identifying that fun and, and 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 realizing what's causing it right and that's got to make you go you know hey there's something else here yeah that's definitely a thing there's occasionally times when you know you do something as a joke and you never expect to show it to anyone it's like something for your home group that you've played like once yeah and then like it kind of it kind of sticks with you and then mm -hmm. occasionally like and, and and i know because like john and i definitely have this this phrase where we look at each other and i'm like i think there's something here i think this has got legs <laughs> and so uh and and he said the same thing to me about you know games before so like yeah it's it's a it's a thing it's like yeah yep. you definitely zero in, in it so yeah Band of Blades was uh, a bit more of a obvious departure. I think that Scum and Villainy has a lot of subtle departures from Blades. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that seem like they're really small changes, like the Gambit, which is a thing that you get on Risky Rolls, that actually changes the tone of the game entirely. Yep. Um, but if you don't call out why you're doing a specific thing or you don't make a big deal of it, sometimes it's easy to just be like, I don't know, it's just, sometimes you make a die. That doesn't seem like a big deal, but it, it really does make a huge difference. Well, and it's fun to find that. I find it fun to find that. Um, things that I didn't think would be a big deal. And then you go, well, wow, that is a big deal. Um, the, the first time I read game design. Oh, I, I mean, the first time I read Blades in the Dark, like literally the first time I digested it, I'm like position effect, whatever. Right. Like, like, keep going, keep going. And then. I don't know, an hour in running my first game, I'm like, holy shit, like, this is everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> I never seen anything like before. Um, and, and the same thing happens, uh, you know, with Scum and Villainy. You're like, you're like, okay, Mario, yeah, that, you, know, like, you start flexing it and you're like, oh shit, like, this this does change things. This is a big deal. And that's, that's very, very interesting. So one of the questions I often ask is, you know, when you're when you're going through the iterations, what was the big breakthrough? What was what was the big like oh the big click moment? I'm going to do something a little bit different here with this game. Um, what did what can you remember a change you made that you either quickly or hung around for a little while went this is garbage and it has to go? Um, so what was one? Can you remember something big that you threw out? Uh, yeah, I'll I'll tell you, I'll the map. We'll talk about that for one second. Um, Please, but like before I get to it, uh, just to. When I say certain things, this isn't like bragging. It's just that uh, big changes tend to you, you need to you you understand usually before you even like the more you make games, particularly in the same system, the faster you'll understand that something's not going to work. Right. So it's like uh, it's experience. So a lot of when I say like, well, there wasn't a ton of that uh, in certain in, in like Band of Blades, people are like, 
did you try different stuff? It's like, well, we thought about stuff and we postulated to each other and maybe we rolled a couple of dice to see if it would work. And when it didn't, we backed away from it. But that was before it even hit the table. That's the practice piece. Yeah, uh, that's the practice piece. Yeah. But one of the things that we goofed around for a while is um, we kept trying to figure out how to make the travel to Skydagger Keep work. And what we settled on finally is something called a point crawl where there are branching choices, but you go from location to location. But previous to that, one of the things that we did was we actually had a hex map where you would calculate, like, there was, like, costs of movement. You would roll to get how much you could move, and then you could, like, cut through the grasslands or, like, try and hire a boat and all this other stuff. And what we actually discovered was that... So, first off... um, for those of you that don't know, I, I accepted this from John Harper. One of the things that I realized is that the fastest way to get a game into someone's hands and playing is if you make some sheets. And one of the things that we one of the things that, that forces you to do is you have to write your rules incredibly clearly and incredibly concisely. So there's a lot of times where people are like, well, why don't you just write it like this? And I'm like, because it won't fit on a page. And and that's the thing that's really hard for some people to understand because like that's a consideration I have to keep in mind because I can't hand a book to someone and expect them to play within a half hour, I hand them usually a a character sheet or a handout and, you know, they have like two or three and that's all they're expected to digest before they play. And so one of the things that we discovered is that these hex movement rules like ate up an immense amount of space. (laughs) But after testing it extensively, what we discovered was that it took the same number of turns to get the sky dagger. Isn't that funny? So there wasn't really a, a, a major advantage other than you could decide to do some sort of weird maneuver and cut through the fields. And like, we had like different encounters for fields versus cities or whatever. And so like, you could only get like special missions in locations. So people ended up going to the locations anyway. And so like, it was just, it was just one of those <laughs> things. Like we, we, we tried it and we thought that it was like going to be really interesting and provide this like flanking or hiding kind of, th- it, it just, it didn't work. And so like, it, yeah, it, it, that went out the window and we That's settled on cool. the, kind of like location to location travel with like a single role to signify like how many resources it eats up. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, very revealing. Very, very revealing. So guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about uh, something a little bit more recent. We're going to talk about some of the uh, games that followed the two games that we talked about. And uh, I want to uh, kind of uh, bug you a little bit and find out what you think about the industry today. We'll be right back. Gadzooks Gaming is one of our favorite places online to get your gaming goodies. Terrain, base inserts, miniature games like Marvel Crisis Protocol and Malifaux, jewelry, and even hand-carved wands. RPG books for Call of Cthulhu and Dungeons and Dragons, accessories and models to make your RPG session next level. They are veteran-owned and operated and help support us. So go to gadzooksgaming.com and check out all of their gaming gold. Be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. That's gadzooksgaming.com. So sometimes I feel bad when I reach out to designers. And developers, because um, I'll give you an example. I reach out to Steve Jackson, say, you know, Steve, I'd love for you to come on the show. And like an idiot, he said yes. 
And I wanted to talk about GURPS, right? Because ah. GURPS, <laughs> GURPS was like for me, it was my D&D, right? Years of my childhood spent grokking GURPS. The last freaking thing Steve Jackson wants to talk about is GURPS. Is GURPS. Um, and I, I can't blame the guy, right? And, and it, you know, and, and at one point in the pre-interview when he and I were just kind of chatting, um, I said, you know, because I, I kind of knew this already. I'd already talked to some other people. And I said, I do have GURPS in the outline. He goes, I see it. And I said, I, I, I just want to talk a little bit about it. Um, but I understand, like, you don't want to hold on to it. He goes, Craig, I just, I've talked, I've talked to all I'm going to talk about it. And I've he goes, talked it to death. Yeah. And he goes, <laughs> and, he, and he goes, one Google search and you could find hours of me talking about it. And I'm like, that's fair. And, and I feel that a little bit with you too, right? So these are games that, you know, that, that you've made and, and they're, and they're they're closed so the reason all of that really overly long inter, uh, introduction is what are you excited about what do you what is what have you put out recently what are you working on now um what do you want to talk about well um so this is this is interesting uh working on a book as i mentioned is kind of a it's an act of stamina <laughs> um and because you're working to a deadline right like the book has to get a print and you want to have a book finished so that it can get sold at Gen Con or whatever. Um, it also means that a lot of times that's the only thing you're working on for a while. And everybody deals with that pressure a little bit differently. Uh, I know that after we're done with a book, the first thing that John does is take like four weeks off to just like chill. And that's that's totally understandable. And I have absolutely no, you know, a judgment on that. But because I'm not allowing my brain to design other games, I usually what happens is the moment I come out of a book, I make like two or three small games. That's just how I do. And so um, frequently there's this absurdly crunched sprint as I put something out just to help release the pressure, as it were. Um, and so I, I've been I've been I have a bunch of small games that came out. Uh, some of them are not actually freshly designed, although they're redesigned. Um, so I have made, I've worked a lot with Forged in the Dark and one of the things that I haven't worked, uh, super extensively with is PBTA. I've played a lot of PBTA. I've play tested a lot of PBTA, but, um, I'm, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I put out, um, uh, a bunch of small games. You can find links to most of our games off of our off guard game site, which I wish was super up to date, but truth be told, John and I look at it when we have to put something up for the most part, um, but uh, yeah, one of the games that happened, um, I, I admire designers like Jason Morningstar greatly. Uh, and one of the things that I in particular admire about Jason is that he can find inspiration to make a game in almost anything. He'll watch a news snippet and he'll have a LARP about it by like that weekend. And for a while, I wondered if there was something weird about me because I, I, I didn't have the same reaction. Like I'll watch a news snippet and I'll be like, well, that's a terrible thing that's happening, but I, I won't like make a game about it. Um, and then uh, a, a friend of mine, uh, John Sheldon, he he something was going on in his life and he was spending a lot of time in, in doctor's offices. And so he would stick two pens, one black and one orange in his pocket, and he would just sketch in a sketchbook. And then he would post those pictures online. And they really spoke to me about those early days of gaming, like where where you had very like, second edition art where it wasn't like the polished, you know, full color painterly style that Watsi seems to favor these days. Um, and it was, it, it, I, 
I immediately knew the kind of game that I would make to go with it. And so like I reached out and I was like, Hey, do you want a game to go with that art? And so, um, so I made like this, this tiny little game called, uh, into the dark, uh, which actually it's a, it's a 50 game in the sense that it still uses fictional positioning and whatnot, but it does it in a really weird way where it adds or removes dice. And so like, that was just me experimenting with like reducing the size of a game and trying to make it smaller and smaller so that it's easier and easier to hack. And it's even got like little adventures in the back and whatnot. Um, so that, that's the thing I made. Um, there was a, a game that I made as a joke. It wasn't as a joke. It's um, Sean, <laughs> Sean, Sean asked me to make a game. Well, actually Sean asked me to GM a game for BBC and it sold out. And um, it, it, I decided to make a custom game for the people there. And I actually did a game chef style thing where I let them pick verbs or, or to pick uh, things that, you know, would be in the game. And they chose uh, spycraft and supernatural and, and trust and all this. And so like, I, I cooked up a game called project Perseus, which was uh, basically like spies versus the supernatural. And now that's becoming a thing. Like Sean's like, Hey, you should actually make that a real book. So now, now we're, we're doing that. Um, so it's, it's one of those things. It's like, sometimes you, you just come out of this like pressure cooker. Like I, I know that a lot of people have coping strategies, but like certain things, like the way that I cope with certain things is I I make games. So, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I, we went into the lockdown and I was only seeing my friends online. So of course what I do, I made a game for us. So now I'm working (laughs) on, on spell and play. That's the thing that I'm excited about. Um, so a few times now, uh, Strash, you said, you know, it started off as a joke and then it became a game. It started off as a yeah. joke and then made a game. Um, I'm, I'm going to say this and you tell me if I'm wrong. I imagine there's been a lot of things that start off as a joke and they never became a game. Is that accurate? Yes. Yes, okay. that is accurate. Yeah. Um, I don't want to give the impression that every time there's a joke near you, there ends up becoming a game. I, I think that what it is, is that, oh, well, it, Here's the thing. I didn't realize it until this moment. Maybe my inspiration is just very different than Jason Morningstar. Maybe maybe <laughs> jokes are what fuels me. Um, but uh, you're laughing. I'm, I'm actually pretty serious. There's times when somebody says something and I make a game out of it. And I, I think that where I'm drawing the line is I think it always becomes a game. But I think that some of them become games that I share with other people. And so sometimes it's a game that is either personal or it only works in a specific context. And sometimes it's a game that's not like monetizable. Like it's not productizable. It's, it's a thing that is fun and is a thing that I love playing with my friends, but I don't know that it's going to get a broader reach or maybe it needs a strange form factor. Um, like I was actually talking to John LaBeouf little about dogs in the vineyard and we were talking about how wildly different our experiences with the game were. And yeah. I mentioned that, the context that I saw it in, like the context that I saw the game in most was a one shot at cons where it played more like in an episode of the supernatural in the wild West or weird West, I guess. And, and so John's like, well, that sounds like a more like, why, why doesn't somebody make that game? And so like literally a month after that, I ran that game for him and it was, it was, it's not something I want to publish necessarily, but it's something that I, you know, we made and it was fun and we had a good time with it. And then it, went on the shelf like so i'm gonna pick your oh go ahead i'm sorry um well no 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 just just as a point of note i I think that early on when you're a young designer um you think that ideas are everything this ideation like you're only ever going to have two or three great ideas and you will only (laughs) ever make two or three great games and i think that there is some truth to the fact that as i mentioned before it takes a lot of effort to take a game to completion and so 
what happens is that the amount of time that it takes to finish a product, to make a full-fledged book or whatever, eats up a lot of your life. And so what happens is that during that time, you'll have more ideas, sometimes because of jokes, sometimes because you find a specific mechanic. Sometimes there's a mechanic that doesn't work for this game, but it's going to work for your next game. And so you keep a folder of all of these ideas. And at any given time, the question that you're really asking is, what do I be, want to actually commit enough time to finish now? And so, yeah, there's a lot of joke ideas. And the thing is that some of them are jokes that I don't think we'll ever see the light of day. Maybe they just had like a, a, a flawed conceit or there was some mechanic that didn't quite work out and you don't have time to fix it now. But maybe six years from now, you'll be in the shower and all of a sudden you'll have a flash <laughs> of insight on how to fix it and it's good to go. And sometimes it's just, um, it's it's the idea that, yeah, this is a cool idea, but it's not something that I want to work on right now. I want to work on this other thing. And sometimes it's not even your choice. Sometimes you ask your... Uh, producer, and you're like, hey, Sean Ninner, I have these three things I want to do. Which of these do you think Evil Hat would be most interested in? And, you know, Sean will say, that one I think will probably sell the best, so please work on that one. And you're like, okay. And, and like, you should never pick something that you don't actually want to work on. But, like, if you do have a list, you know, then, you know, they, that can help you sort of figure out, like, well, if this one's going to get published and these other ones are not, then clearly work on that one. So, um, yeah, it's it's just... Sometimes it's a joke and it stays a joke. Sometimes it's a game that is going to have legs. It's just not going to have legs today. So, so I'm trying to figure out how to formulate this question. And if I flop, you're just going to say, Craig, I have no idea what the hell you're asking me. Um, I'm trying to figure out this response language that I'm picking up and the patterns of the stories you're telling me where um, I read this and somebody said it's impossible and I respond with a, a, a game. Yeah. Uh, someone makes a joke and I go, well, well, let's try that next week. Uh, there's lockdown. So I'm going to make a game. Oh, can you help me understand what's going on there? Like, the, is it a language? Is, is it a, how you communicate? Is it a response? Is it just you love making games? Like what's what's driving that? Or have I picked up on a pattern that doesn't exist? I, I can't stop making games is the problem. I've tried. It just there was a, I had a, I had a couple of rough weeks and I was like, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to make more games right now. And then of course somebody said something about, you know, Hey, we just watched this. Maybe we can play next week. And then of course I made it. So, um, I think it's one of those things is like, I, I keep making games and also my brain, um, has, has these leaps of intuition. Like when somebody says like, I don't think this can be done. I can kind of half see the pattern or maybe I just have the answer. And then instead of writing a rant on the internet, I just make a game that lets a person test it and see exactly how I'm kind of envisioning it working. Right. Um, it's, it's not, I, I definitely think there is a pattern there. Uh, it's just like, it's like a teacher, you know, saying something in class and you're like, Oh, I know the answer to this one. But like, I think that games are, uh, we, we talked about this earlier, right? Games are a powerful thing. And so, uh, I think that it is instead of arguing with someone or telling someone that they're wrong or being mean to someone, I think that it's more fruitful to add to the conversation by producing something mm -hmm. like make the world a bigger place, make it, make it a small game that maybe is never going to become a book. So like put it out there, CCBY, let people hack it. So if somebody says like, Hey, this can't be done. And then you put out a small game and you're like, Hey, please, uh, you know, use this game to make more games. Um, that's absolutely a thing I want to do. Like I believe in my community. Uh, I could not have made any of these games without the work that came before them. Um, obviously we see that PBTA like 
is the the core touchstone that you know blades is built from and my games are built from from blades and trying to extend some of the systems and play with them there and so without the generous um work and also the giving away of 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 the the rights to continue that work uh some of these people have done stuff like this so it's i feel like it's my responsibility to contribute instead of just yell on the internet which doesn't <laughs> go anywhere uh, so like it yeah it's it's one of those things like produce something put it out there it might get noticed it might not but like you know it it adds to conversation and gives people some lego blocks because who knows sometimes uh you know you you put out a game and you don't expect anything to happen and then you know you get an email <laughs> a couple years down the road and someone's like hey i made this thing out of this or like hey can i can i publish this thing that uses this mechanic and you're like yeah sure that's great i'm excited so one of the things that's been really cool about having this podcast and me deciding that I'm going to ask everybody who's made a game that I like to see if they come on the show. And, um, on, you know, oddly, nobody said no. Um, but but what it's allowing me to do, because like I mentioned, there was a huge gap in me playing and I just came back and like the whole freaking place changed. Right. Everybody changed games and they didn't ask me about it. Um, and I've been trying to piece it together. And so another thing I'm picking up on, and again, tell me if I'm barking up the wrong tree here between talking to the bakers, talking to Ron about, you know, the, the kind of the culture of the forge. Um, and one of the things that I'm picking up on is that was, that was a language that somebody would say something in the context of the forge and people would respond with a game. They would say, I, I think you're wrong. And, 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 and you know, I think it was uh, Vincent that said this. He was just like, don't tell me I'm wrong. Show me I'm wrong. And, and I'm wondering if that built up a culture of some something or was it that, that people, that's how they communicated anyway and they just happened to come together there? Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, I, think, I think that that's a practice that has existed in many different, like, I, I don't want to say subcultures, but what I mean is like you, you get, like I said, the salons of the physicists and how they did the physics thought experiments. Art critique oftentimes can can actually be done similarly where somebody makes a painting with a new style that shows a new perception or a new way to do a thing. Um, and, and so I think that that's there are definitely communities that do that. And I think that the forge happened and I happen to be the kind of scientist that always admired this and. I think that I'm I, so I'm too young. I, I missed the forge. I, I, <laughs> I, I wasn't part of that community. I can't, I can't claim credit. I'm, I'm actually way younger in the indie scene than most people think. Um, and so, but a lot of my mentors, a lot of the people that I admire, a lot of the people that talk about stuff, uh, would do things like this. And, you know, you would, you would see people who would do thought experiments like Epidia on would, would make a game that would fit on a business card. And that's that's a thing that he did. And that inspired an entire like micro game genre. And so, like, I think what it is, is just that I sort of looked at the road tread before me and I I found that this worked for me. It's not necessarily going to work for everyone. Um, I'm also an academic. So to me, uh, one of the things that I did was my homework. So I actually went back and read a lot of the Forge essays and I yeah. read a lot of the posts and things like that. You know, you go through the Lumpley blog and everything. So I think that some of it's just stuff that I accepted or absorbed as part of me. And some of it just comes to me naturally from these other communities that I'm a part of. I don't know that everyone's going to be able to do that. Um, some it's not going to make sense to everybody, right? Exactly. It, it made sense to you. Uh, and so like, this is a, this is a thing that I've adopted. It's also a thing that I encourage people to do because I think that making a thing forces you to think about a thing 
and typing an angry blog post, uh, oftentimes <laughs> you regret it. Uh, so you, sh you shouldn't. Um, but it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where like making a thing will teach you about it. Even if it teaches you like what doesn't work about it, that's still a lesson you're learning. And so, uh, the process of making this thing and putting it out there and seeing what people do with it, I think is uh, a powerful one because it helps you even if it helps nobody else, but hopefully it'll help other people as well. And so, um, so it's a thing that I espouse. It's a thing that I encourage people to do, but I also respect the fact that, you know, some people are desperately trying to have a game design career, but also juggling a kid and work and other stuff. And maybe not everyone can just make a game in a weekend. And so like, I'm not judging anyone out there. It's just, this is me. This is the community yeah. that I kind of learned from and, and it, it, it is what works for me. It works for you. And, and I think that's, I think that's a big takeaway. Um, so back in 92, when I played my last game of role-playing before I took my huge break, don't laugh at me. That's I'm not that. I old. am not laughing. I, I yeah, just, you are laughing. You, you, yeah, everybody, everybody listening right now, <laughs> literally trying not to burst out laughing when I said 92. <laughs> and then seven years later, I was born. Um, I come back and the world has completely changed, right? Um, before you had to have a password to figure out if somebody else liked D&D &D and then you'd meet under the underpass and maybe we'd play. Now everybody's like, yeah, everybody, I love role playing. Have you watched Critical Role? Like, you know, I, I can mention it at a dinner party and I'm not going to get looked at. Um, it, it, the, everything has changed. And I'd be curious, um, two things to keep it short, because uh, we could do a whole podcast on the current state. Um, what, it, what is exciting to you about where we are now in the hobby and what scares you? Uh, one of the things that's really exciting is that we're kind of in a golden age of role-playing games. Uh, we're seeing a lot of small games. We're seeing people pushing the envelope with what constitutes a game. Uh, we're seeing people pushing the envelope with trying all sorts of weird and different rules. Um, so I think that, that what's exciting is the fact that the game I'm most excited about is probably one that I haven't even seen yet. Uh, because every year I see new stuff that's absolutely brilliant and doing some cool stuff. And every year I still find games that I'm absolutely hyped to get to the table. Absolutely, you know, thrilled to give a spin. And some of them work out, some of them don't, but that's like the normal process. But I think that, that that's the thing that's like super exciting about the hobby. Um, and actually, I think that there are shifts happening that I think we're not even understanding because like it's one of those things where when it first started out there were these like magazines that you needed to have a secret know-how to even sign up for one to get I remember one Remember those times and then like <laughs> right and so like and now we're talking about that transition right like where initially you could never meet a designer then conventions happen then you could maybe meet a designer in person so somebody could be sent out as an emissary and then like after that, it came to like, wait, now you can just email any designer and they'll probably respond. And then it got to the point where it's like, wait, you can chat with them in real time. Um, and there was this transition that I think we're still now it's becoming mainstream, but I think that it took a little while. Like you'll still find a bunch of designers who will write big blog posts about like, does Twitch even really matter? And I'm like, <laughs> whoa, you are a dinosaur friend. <laughs> you got some catching um, up to do. <laughs> hint uh, it's bigger than than you think yeah. uh so it's it's one of those things where twitch went from this curiosity that popped up to well maybe we can role play on it to critical role now has a cartoon on amazon right and so uh one of the things that i think 
is happening is this shift and i'm 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 really curious about seeing does the 300 pound gorilla aka D&D like get th- dethroned by like a game cuz like we see some some it, this is the thing that i fear this is where i'm i'm landing on the fear ready is that people oftentimes confuse monetary success with quality so now that role playing has become mainstream uh, and and we've kind of won the culture war where you're no longer like made fun of for role playing um you start seeing some of the negative connotations of that right so like how wendy's became one of the most played rpgs ever in a weekend because they gave some kind of pitiful sum of money to an advertising agency that put out something that's kind of like a role playing game and it's it's one of those things where like we are starting to see corporatization and uh I mean, some of the biggest games that are out there right now are written not by the most brilliant game designers, but by really good marketers. And so, like, now we are being exposed to all of the market forces that actually influence a lot of things. And so this niche hobby that was really about these beautiful stories and these thought experiments is becoming a lot more mainstream, but that also comes with its own costs, right? Where, like, the noise of the mainstream will drown out things. And there's some some people trying to make an effort. I, I know that for all the flack that he sometimes catches, like Mercer is trying to run indie games now and again and, and help out some lesser known designers and things like that. And I know from just like looking at some numbers that people publish, like um, I know that Roll20 publishes like things. So like when, when Mercer ran Call of Cthulhu, like all of a sudden the numbers like went up by orders of, by like millions of games yep. created. And so like, this is one of those things. I think that the next big hurdle is sort of us figuring out how to get the games that people will love into the hands of the people that don't even know they exist. And so uh, it's an interesting time in the hobby. And I think that it is flexible and and looking at how things are shifting is, is kind of mandatory. And and a lot of, well, is this even really going to be a thing is sometimes a foolish question to ask. Yeah. (laughs) I I think that ship sailed, Um, you know, and the same thing of like, you know, (laughs) it just twitch even matter. Really? That made me laugh. Um, But, but you are seeing, so I agree with you, but like seeing like the glass cannon stop playing Pathfinder and they just put out Mork Borg episode three. I mean, that's a sign, right? In my mind that, that, you know, uh, it may not, I I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I find it interesting that we're starting to see, you know, kids on bikes being played by some of the bigger, you know, just like people are starting to pick up this stuff. I'm, I'm laughing because I'm working on a project with Spencer Stark. So it's oh, kind of cool ooh. to hear a plug for kids. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to bug it's you. It's called Young Blades. You're you can gonna, call me back later I'm, for I'm, it. I'm, I'm going to bug <laughs> you for a handshake. You shouldn't have said that out loud. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> um, so I think it's I think it's fascinating, but I think the scary I think is a very legitimate one, a very very legitimate one, and um, I get to, I've been getting tangled up in the uh, is D and D ruining the industry conversations on Twitter, and I do my very very best to stay out of it um, because I don't I don't think it's a simple answer to that at all. But I think the points that you made are very important um, about that. Um, holy crap! What a good time. Um, yeah. I um, was really looking forward to this because I'm a fan and. Uh, this was a great interview and I just cannot thank you enough for taking the time. Oh, Hey, it's my pleasure. I, uh, it's actually really interesting because, um, (laughs) I haven't actually been on all that many podcasts. Uh, it's, it's one of those things I think like right before our games go out, Sean shouts a few things, but like a lot of the podcasts that I do listen to, I have not been on. And so like, it's super interesting to me, like kind of, this was actually super comfortable. I haven't, I'm glad. 
sat down and sort of chatted about the state of gaming and, and ages with anyone. So it's it's kind of it's kind of awesome. See, when some little shitty podcast send you an email that you've never heard of, sometimes you just got to say yes. It may not be um, too bad. I, I, what I, I mean, John Harper was on the show. I don't know if, if the episode's out yet or whatever, but I, I, he spoke very well of you, which I've mentioned. <laughs> so, like, I, I don't know about that. I, I, I got, I definitely got preamble and people praising you long before I well, actually are, showed up here. So Very, very kind. Thank you. All right. So we're going to have a link, obviously, uh, to the um, uh, untended website that you mentioned. <laughs> but if somebody wants to get more of Strash, where else can they go? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Strash A. Um, I'm sure it'll be linked in. The it will. All in the show do. notes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the the that's that's usually a good place to to catch me on the internet uh i used to stream a lot on uh twitch.tv slash actual play i haven't been on there as much lately because i'm working on a book which as aforementioned eats up a lot of time uh but i will be back obviously running and playing games um that's uh that's that's the majority of places you can you can find me beautiful well like i said strash i really appreciate it and uh, for those of you that stuck around all the way to the end i appreciate you too thanks for listening take care this episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floorheads still here wow um well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down scroll down and yeah get the link it's patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible don't you want to join the other floor heads on the patreon discord anyway Thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.